0: You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the
1: cockpit
2: door. WAPG. It's the
3: Airline Pilot Guy.
2: Airline Pilot Guy, episode 563.
3: Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the Airline Pilot
2: Guy. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 30th of March, 2023. In today's episode, a Southwest flight takes off over an ambulance crossing the runway. An off-duty pilot from another airline fills in after a Southwest captain takes ill. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tail from one of the old pilot's RAF forms. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 563 is ready for pushback.
4: Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 1010 wins on 92.3 FM in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great questions, even the the not-so-great ones. I'm Captain Jeff, a pilot at a major legacy airline based somewhere in the U.S. of A. And joining me... From his studio
3: in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire.
4: Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, it's Captain Nick. Hi
0: there, Jeff. Uh, spring has sprung 10 days ago, apparently, but tomorrow we're expecting one of your secondhand hurricanes to come across the country. So. Huh? Blair. I didn't, it's not even hurricane season, what are you talking about? Well, it came
4: from your way, all our weather comes from America. Okay. Um, place to stand, a place to stand. Also, joining us from a place to stand, and a place to grow, and a place for snow, a retired financier, an aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer, it's Liz Piper.
3: Hi everybody. Yeah, we get all our weather from the States too, Nick. I know how you're feeling. Yeah, I well, see I am nice. in a minute.
4: <laughs> we get our weather from you guys up in Canada
3: cool Canadian air I know anyway
4: yeah well that's the best kind of weather
3: have a good show you guys
4: Be Thanks, Liz. Liz. We'll hear you in the control room and uh, we're going to go now directly to some aviation news stand by for news okay we talked about this uh after it happened on uh march 3rd 2023 no that's a preliminary report when did this thing happen uh did it really okay i think you got it right I oh think it was okay third? well i'm wrong at all of that stuff i just said so just pretend that you didn't hear it <laughs> sure okay here we go take two we're going to start off with a preliminary report on a in-flight upset on a business jet that occurred on the 3rd of March of this year. And uh, let's see, let me tell you a little bit about what the preliminary report has revealed. Um, on March 3rd, 2023, about 1600 Eastern Standard Time, a Bombardier bd one hundred one 1A10, a Challenger 300. November 300 Echo Romeo was involved in an accident while en route from uh, Dillant Hopkins Airport, Keene, New Hampshire, to Leesburg Executive Airport in Leesburg, Virginia. The flight diverted to Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. One passenger was fatally injured. The two airline transport pilots and two other passengers were not injured. The airplane was not damaged and was operated as a personal flight under the provisions of Title uh, 14 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 91. The flight crew reported that after a routine pre-flight inspection, engine start, and taxi for departure, a takeoff was initiated. The second in command reported that during the takeoff roll on Runway 2, the airplane accelerated normally. However, he observed that the right primary flight display, airspeed indicator, miscompared to the left side airspeed indicator and aborted takeoff was performed the pilot in command slowed the airplane without issue and exited the runway onto a taxiway the left engine was shut down the second in command opened the main cabin door walked to the front of the airplane where he subsequently observed that the red pedo probe cover remained installed on the right side pedo probe Uh-oh. not a very good uh, pre-flight inspection apparently The second-in-command removed the cover, did not see any damage to the probe, and returned to the cockpit. The pilot-in-command restarted the left engine, probably said some choice words to the uh, (laughs) co-pilot, and then resumed the taxi to runway two shortly after the left engine was started. The crew reported that an engine indicating and crew alerting system, or ICAS, advisory message of rudder limiter fault, enunciated. The pilot in command reported that he attempted two ground avionics stall tests to clear the message, as he had received this advisory message in past ground operations. However, the test did not clear the enunciation. The flight was continued given that the message was an advisory and not a caution or warning. Hmm, interesting. The flight crew further reported that during the second takeoff, the acceleration was normal. However, the second-in-command, the co-pilot, noticed that the V-speeds were not set. The second-in-command called V-1 and rotate at 160 knots from memory, and the pilot-in-command entered the climb without issue. As the initial climb and turn-on course progressed, the pilot-in-command reported that the autopilot was engaged. They continued to climb to 6,000 feet and were subsequently cleared to flight level 240. The flight crew reported that around 6,000 feet, they observed multiple ICAST caution messages. The crew recalled ICAST messages of AP stab trim fail, which is autopilot stabilizer trim failure, mock trim fail, and autopilot holding nose down. Neither crew member could recall exactly what order the ICAST messages were presented. They also reported that additional ICAST messages may have been enunciated. Lots of stuff going on on their ICAS panel. The pilot in command asked the second-in-command to refer to the Quick Reference Handbook. The SIC via an electronic flight bag, an iPad, located the Quick Reference Card. I don't know why they don't have a card, uh, but the card is in the iPad uh, EFB and the Primary Stab Trim Fail uh, Checklist he referred to on the Quick Reference Card. The SIC visually showed the pilot in command the checklist. They both agreed to execute the checklist. The first action on the checklist was to move the stabilizer trim switch, the stab trim, located on the center console from primary to off. The second in command read the checklist item aloud, and he subsequently moved the switch to off. Remember, the autopilot's still engaged at this point. As soon as the switch position was moved, the airplane abruptly pitched up. The pilot-in-command reported that his left hand was on the flight controls and his right hand was guarding the right side of the flight controls. He immediately, with both hands, regained control of the airplane in what he estimated to be a few seconds after the airplane's pitch oscillated up and down. During the oscillations, the pilot-in-command instructed the second-in-command to move the stab-trim switch back to the primary position, which the SIC accomplished. The PIC reported that preceding the rapid pitch event the autopilot was on, and he expected that once the stab trim switch was turned off, that the autopilot would disconnect, which it did. I don't know why he didn't disconnect it before he moved that. Well, anyway, the PIC reported that he had no problem manually flying the airplane after the in-flight upset, nor did he experience any abnormalities trimming the airplane using the manual pitch trim switch located on the control column at any point during the flight. Shortly after the in-flight upset, the flight crew were alerted by a passenger that another passenger had been injured. The SIC exited the cockpit to check on the passenger and to provide medical attention for a short period of time. He subsequently informed the pilot in command that there was a medical emergency and that they needed to land. The flight crew informed air traffic control of the medical event and began a diversion to BDL. The PIC did not re-engage the autopilot for the remainder of the flight. After landing the airplane taxi to the ramp where an ambulance was waiting, paramedics entered the airplane and subsequently transported the injured passenger to a nearby hospital. The passenger succumbed to her injuries later in the day at the hospital. The flight crew reported that they did not experience any remarkable turbulence during the flight, nor during the time immediately surrounding the in-flight upset event. According to preliminary data recorded or recovered from the airplane's flight data recorder, the airplane during the first takeoff attempt reached a maximum airspeed of 104 knots, which was displayed on the captain's airspeed indicator, and two knots on the right PFD airspeed indicator. Yeah, there's quite a discrepancy there. Uh, No significant difference in airspeed was observed in the data for the remainder of the flight following the SIC's removal of the pitot probe cover. Throughout the initial climb, multiple pilot commanded manual pitch trim inputs and corresponding movements from the horizontal stab were observed. During the climb, the preliminary FDR data showed that the autopilot had been engaged and disengaged three separate instances. With each autopilot engagement, an immediate master caution was enunciated. Uh, The flight data recorder does not record specific ICAST caution messages. The autopilot disconnected in the first two instances after the manual pilot pitch trim was activated and small pitch oscillations were observed after the disengagement. The autopilot was re-engaged for the final time at 6,230 feet and remained on until reaching 22,780 feet MSL. The airplane's airspeed had increased from 238 knots to 274 knots in this segment of the climb. Immediately preceding the in-flight upset event, the autopilot abnormal disconnect parameter was activated, and no manual pitch trim inputs were recorded. The data was consistent with flight crews' report that the stab trim switch was moved from primary to off, which resulted in the autopilot diseng- disengaging. All right, so here we go. The airplane immediately pitched up to about 11 degrees, reached a vertical acceleration of about plus 3.8 g's. Ouch! That's just shy of 4 g. That's a lot. <laughs> uh, the airplane subsequently entered a negative vertical acceleration to about minus 2.3 g. Wow. Uh, again, that's probably getting very close to the structural limits of this jet. The airplane pitched up again to about twenty degrees, and a vertical acceleration of plus four point two G's was recorded. Okay, that's so it was even more than the first time. So
0: you've gone from minus two to plus four point yeah. two. I mean, well, almost six was...
4: G of change. Yeah. The stall protection stick pusher activated during this pitch-up, subsequently vertical acceleration lowered to about plus 2.2 G, which is still a lot for a transport category airplane, which was followed by a cutout of flight data recorder data. The FDR and cockpit voice recorder were equipped with an impact switch G switch. I, I guess what that means is in order to protect the data, they have a switch on there that, uh, if excessive G forces are recorded, uh, the it protects itself because it probably thinks it's just crashed.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
4: The CBR continued to record for an additional ten minutes as it was equipped with a backup power supply. However, the CBR also stopped recording data uh, prior to landing at Bradley. A representative with the Executive Flight Services, EFS, LLC, reported that they managed the airplane, the accident airplane and employed the flight crew. Uh, they said that the flight was operated as a, non-rev, a non-revenue Part 91 flight operated by the owner of the airplane connect, connection, mm-hmm. LLC. According to Federal Aviation Administration Airman Records, the pilot command held an airline transport pilot certificate and held a pilot in command type rating in the accident airplane. In addition to the other type ratings he held, EFS reported that the PIC had accumulated 5,061 total flight hours and 88 hours in the accident make and model. The SIC held an airline transport pilot certificate and held a PIC rating in the accident airplane as well. In addition to other type ratings, EFS reported that the SIC had accumulated 8,025 total flight hours, 78 in the accident make and model. In October 2022, both pilots completed initial ground and simulator training and earned their PIC type ratings in the Challenger 300. Wow. Okay, so the uh, the re- uh, one of the reasons why this was kind of a, a high uh, visibility kind of an accident was the fact that the lady that succumbed to her injuries, the, who was killed in this accident, uh, or in-flight upset, uh, was a former White House um uh, staffer, um, and, uh, worked for, I think both the Obama and, um, Clinton, uh, administrations, uh, uh, Liz, exactly what was her, um, okay. She's going to look that up for so us. Anyway, she was, you know, a lot of people knew her in, uh, uh in the white house community and, uh, um, yeah. And she was with her husband and, uh, one of their sons and, uh, they, as I said, weren't um, didn't have any uh, major injuries at all from this in-flight upset, but apparently um, she wasn't. I'm assuming she probably wasn't belted in and uh, got flung about. I mean, if you're not connected to the airplane and you experience plus 3.8, minus 2.3, plus 4.2, I mean, that's that's going to be tough to, especially if you hit things on the way up and down. That's going to be hard to hard to live through, really.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because it's not just, I mean, the height of the cabin is, what, five feet, I guess, probably one of these, perhaps six feet if you're in the the middle of it. Uh, it's not just falling six feet, but it's falling six feet at six times gravity. So you've been held up, there at least four times gravity. You've been held up, pushed up to the ceiling, with the negative G, and then smacked down uh, four times faster than you would normally fall. So that kind of impact is going to, a lot of damage is going to cause a lot of trauma. Yeah. Very
4: sad. Uh, she was a senior advisor for the State Department. Um, and I, yeah, when I was reading this preliminary report, I'm thinking, okay, uh, they did a couple things that weren't great. Uh, well, one of the things they did do well was the, uh, the pilots was that as they were taking off, they did the check, you know, we always talk about calling out. Certain things during the takeoff roll, and one of those things, depending on the airplane, I think on the airbus it's hundred knots on most of the uh, all the airplanes that I've flown, transport category eighty knots is the number and what you're doing is you're ensuring that the uh, pedostatic instrumentation is working properly, and uh, there, you know you have redundant systems you're also making sure that both systems are, are are very similar in readings and so when we call out eighty knots on my jet. Uh, that's um, kind of a cue for the other pilot to look down, make sure that that's what they're indicating as well so that we have good pitot-static systems before we take the airplane into the air. And they did that. They did that well. The uh, second-in-command noted that the um, <clears throat> the uh, airspeed on his side was not indicating anything, basically, two knots, and so called out uh, pr- appropriately for an abort. Uh, but it just also reveals that they're – their pre-flight inspection uh, didn't wasn't as the attention to detail wasn't as 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 uh, great as it, it should have been,
0: and also you know the the faults they uh, um, had later on make me think that I wonder if they cleared all the problems that this this speed mismatch had. Occurred either. Probably not. Some of them were flagged up in the uh, flight control system or the uh, avionics or whatever it is that you get on one of these aircraft. Um, and the other thing was that they were obviously perhaps a bit thrown by it because they didn't prep the airplane sufficiently well the second time because they forgot to put in the V speeds, uh, which yeah. is it is quite a <laughs> it's quite a sin uh, because uh, you know for Jeff and I flying. Um, proper airliners that's uh, or bigger airliners that really is a is a vital check you've got to make sure you have all those and it's part of our checklists to make sure that we have correctly indicating v-speeds before we even start taxing right uh, having entered all the data yeah um so i'm thinking that either they were just making a lot of mistakes which could be unusual but could be indicative of something um or they were a bit thrown by what had previously occurred and they were they weren't disciplining themselves to go right let, let's start all over again uh, right. and right from where go and make sure that this time we do everything correctly mm-hmm. and they obviously didn't quite you know decide to do that just to make sure that they were going to dot all the i's and cross all the t's so that's uncomfortable i agree uh, The thing that makes me think there might have still been a residual issue with uh, the airspeed is that the failures they were getting all seem uh, Mm -hmm. airspeed-related. Certainly, uh, rudder limiter fault they got. That is usually um, something that prevents you from applying large amounts of rudder at high airspeed so that you don't damage the rudder, the fin, or just very it just over control the airplane so as you accelerate uh the amount of rudder tra- travel you have available to you is reduced and that's done on an airspeed switch usually or an airspeed sensor and the fact they got that fault made me think oh i wonder if that airspeed sensor isn't working properly um and there was something else also here. the two um issues they had with um stab trim fail autopilot stab trim and mac trim fail they're also speed related issues in in that um the the stabilator the the big you know horizontal slab at the back uh, isn't now moving in accordance with your trim and if it's got an automatic trimming system on this aircraft i don't know if it does or not then that will be trimmed out according to a schedule whether that is airspeed related or not i don't know but that i think gives us a clue as to what happened when the autopilot disconnected
4: right and even that that message that i've never seen before but apparently is on this jet that the autopilot is holding nose down that i mean that's a clue right there that obviously there's something going on with the pitch trim the pitch driven's yeah. is not properly set, and the autopilot is doing everything it can with its available authority to keep the nose down because it's trying to pitch up. That should have been like the clue that hey, that should if have the been autopilot a red flag for me. disconnects, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a wild yeah. ride. This is
0: not an unheard of situation. We know of quite a few accidents where the elevator on the back of the stabilator is holding the aircraft in level flight or in its correct attitude because the stabilator, the great big all-moving tailplane, is in the wrong position. And when that elevator uh, autopilot holding that elevator finally releases it, there's a huge trim change, which is what occurred, which caused mm-hmm. that enormous pitch up of uh, 10, 11 degrees and 3.8 G whatever it was. Um, so, yeah, you're right, Jeff. That that should have been, oh, what the hell is this? What is going on here? Let's, uh, you know, what can we do? And if there's not a checklist for it, then just slow the aircraft down to a moderate speed so that they were doing 280-something knots by mm-hmm. that point, weren't they? Two 200-
4: hundred. Yeah. Two seventy-eight or not. something.
0: Two seventy-eight. Yeah, they were they were like they that. were beetling along in the climb. You know, that's going to slow the aircraft down so that the um, stab has less aerodynamic effect. You're going to get a smaller pitch change when you release it. Uh, and also, I was curious. Uh, there, they looked for something on their QRH, a checklist to run, and the one they ran, I don't think, really was. Hit the hit the nail on the head. Um, they ran one for uh, a pitch stab trim fail. That's the checklist they ran. Uh, none of the cautions they had was for a pitch stab trim fail. Uh, might have been, might have been. They they hopefully know their aircraft well. They haven't long since they did their all their tech stuff and simulators, uh, and uh, that, that might. But one wonders if there was a more specific. Uh, Checklist uh, for the failures that they had actually had indicated.
4: Yeah, and going back to the the whole nexus of this, uh, the fact that they had the pitot tube covered, and then they had to abort the takeoff, and then they, as you said, they're probably rushed and hurried, and probably embarrassed that they had to abort the takeoff because they did something really stupid like forgetting to remove one of the covers and okay let's just get this thing going you know right away here and and get on with it and not slowing down and going okay wait a minute what just happened what could have been affected by all of this and in today's modern airplanes and modern avionics and fms boxes and everything else you're almost you're almost better off just going back to the ramp and uh, shutting everything down and then just starting everything back up from, the, you know, from the very beginning just yeah. because these systems are very sophisticated and, and they're very dependent upon uh, various things happening at certain points. And when something is, is – like when the wrench is thrown into the mix and uh, something goes wrong, uh, it's, it's going to have some uh, effects that are residual effects that are happening absolutely
0: and, and uh 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 blackhawk mm-hmm. has uh i think highlighted it we sort of alluded to it yep. some sort of uh um data concentrator failure um that might have held those uh, a problem since they had that SB mismatch uh and right. didn't fix itself you know sometimes if you shut the airplane completely down and then started up again that will fix these things, but I don't know if they got that far.
4: And um, Victoria makes a good point in our live audience. Why didn't they ensure that the passengers were seated and belted prior to turning off the autopilot, given the pitch trim fault? I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, and now yeah. I would be like, that would be one of the things on my mind. Is like, okay, something's wrong. The airplane's trying to counter something going on with the pitch trim system. Let's just make sure everybody is seated with their seatbelts fastened before I yeah. attempt to turn the autopilot off and we fix the situation. Yeah, um,
0: I, I think if you had these problems in a simulator and you uh, put the seatbelt signs on or and shouted through the door, make, everyone make sure you're strapped in, please. The instructor would be quite impressed. He would say, okay, well done. You're covering all your bases. Mm-hmm. You might not have a problem, but if you did, at least you've made sure your passengers are safe and
4: secure. And as far as the um, – how – seatbelts are, um, handled on private aircraft. I'm, I don't really know. I mean, I don't know if there are federal aviation regulations that, uh, cover this sort of thing or, and, and, it didn't sound to me like there was a, uh, an attendant in the back. Um, it was just the two pilots and the three passengers. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure what kind of briefing that they give to the, uh, to the passengers before they go um, or what I'm not sure how they communicate with them uh, that they need to be in their seat with their seatbelt fastened at certain points of the flight that's a it's a good question. maybe somebody out there knows gubby's asking me a question does the mad dog seven one seven have a pitch authority warning? We do have a a system that uh, if the if the stab trim is out of trim for uh, a certain amount of time, we get a stab trim light that is warning us that uh, it's either not is trying to catch up with the what the airplane's doing like if you slow down rapidly uh, sometimes the the trim system if uh, when you have the autopilot on uh, the it's using the lower rate trim system and sometimes the rate at which the airplane's slowing down uh, it, it's, it's hard for the autopilot and the trim system to, to to keep up with it. And it's just kind of a warning to you that it's, it's not quite there yet. It's trying to catch up and you can hear it. We have oral warnings that after the pitch, uh, trim uh, system is, has been working for a certain length of time, it, it uh, emits this really obnoxious sounding tone, which I almost don't even hear anymore because I'm so, so used to hearing it. But, um, unlike some other airplanes like the uh, 727 that I flew where the, uh, the pitch, the manual pitch trim uh, system was actually a big wheel uh, it's 737, same thing. That's, that's, that's rotating around and it's making kind of a clackety sound. And so it's very obvious when the air, when the airplane is trimming. Uh, if you have the autopilot on, it's obvious when the autopilot's trimming. And also when you're manually flying, it's obvious when you're activating the pitch trim system because this wheel's going, you know, making it well, not I can't imitate the sound, but it's a, a distinctive sound. And everybody listening out there who has flown a Boeing that has this kind of a manual trim wheel kind of a system they know exactly what I'm talking about. kind of like cackalacky 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 yeah exactly <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> maybe that's how they came up with that term yeah. um anyway so uh yeah there is a there are but it's not the same sort of system that you've uh described Gubby, uh regarding you know like when you when it reaches a 50 um stab trim position that it yells at you and let you know that you're uh pitch trim authority is, is in a way limited. Uh, no, not quite the same. All right. Tim Van Ram, uh, says flying in my company's corporate, uh, aircraft, they have seatbelt lights and are used during takeoff and landing. I've never seen the light used during flight. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. So, uh, obviously that was a preliminary report. They're doing some more, investigation on this. Of course, it's in progress and uh, it'll be interesting to see what they come up with in their final report as far as mistakes made and probable causes and that kind of thing. Yep. Uh, the next item is from the Aviation Herald. Uh, Southwest Airlines Boeing 737-700 registration 212, Whiskey November, performing flight 471 from Baltimore, Maryland to Chicago O'Hare was cleared for takeoff from Baltimore's runway 15 right, commenced takeoff at 1358 local time. A fire and rescue vehicle, an ambulance, was cleared to cross runway 10 and hold short of 15 right at the ARF Road, um, Airport Rescue Firefighting Road, about 5,700 feet, 1,740 meters down runway 15 right. The vehicle, however, read back to cross runway 10 and 15 right. Uh, The controller did not correct the readback. The vehicle continued and crossed runway 15 right while the Boeing 737 was in their takeoff run. The Boeing 737 continued the takeoff, became airborne, and continued to destination without further incident. The FAA reported in their safety summit held as a result of other losses of runway separation, listing a total of eight such occurrences, that the aircraft became airborne just before the intersection where the vehicle was crossing the distance between aircraft and vehicle had reduced to about 173 feet horizontally. That's close. Ouch. By the time the aircraft went past the intersection, the vehicle was already about 170 feet past the runway. Oh, okay. So it had already cleared the runway then. That's what I'm getting from that. But not by a huge amount. Not by a huge amount, no. Uh, Weather conditions at the time, uh, looks like seven miles visibility, light rain. Um, low cloud, but, um, you know, it's decent, decent visibility, even though light rain was, um, showing in the, uh, METAR, but, um, wow. That was a close one. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's not the first time, of course, we, wasn't that long ago, there was a collision between, uh, an aircraft and a firefighting vehicle in similar circumstances. Um, And, uh, you know, it's not going to be long if we keep on doing this. People keep on uh, forgetting to check the runways visually when they get to them to ensure that they're actually clear just in case someone has made a mistake. Um, And then you'd have spotted the airplane. But if you're just going to drive around and hope
4: for the best, uh, eventually something's going to happen. Yeah, and I'm I'm sure that the, um, the ambulance probably heard what they were expecting to hear from Tower. And the the big critical part of this, and I think in one of our, if we get to it today uh, in the feedback, uh, talks about the the importance of communications and the fact that air traffic control is required to listen to the readback, and if the readback is not correctly stated, that the air traffic controller must uh, correct the uh, yeah. whatever is not properly read back uh, because it's critical. And uh, again. Maybe the readback is what the controller was expecting to hear from them, and it wasn't. You know, just you know, attention to detail uh, is important in this uh, world of aviation. With uh...
0: yeah, uh, we all need to be aware of expectation bias, where we expect to hear something, and something comes back, and you just assume you heard it correctly, mm-hmm. or it was correct when you heard it, without listening to it properly and analyzing what was said and comparing it with what should be said. So. Exactly.
4: It's, uh, communications is so important. Um, oh, especially absolutely. in this, uh, aviation world. Okay. Um, this one, uh, there was a communication, uh, made by the copilot to air traffic control and, um, uh, I'll do the setup here. Well, first of all, this is from nbcnews.com, The, uh, major article that we're referring to on this next news item. Um, a Southwest flight 6013 was headed from Las Vegas to Columbus, Ohio on Wednesday when one of the pilots needed medical attention, according to a spokesperson for Southwest Airlines. And I have some uh, ATC uh, live ATC.net audio uh, that uh, picks up at the point where uh, there is a problem and the co-pilot is trying to communicate this problem to air traffic control.
5: South of 6013, are you on my frequency yet? LA Center, Southwest 6013, flight level 320. South of 6013, they finally ship you over. Uh, click direct to Chow, and uh, when you have a moment, I have some questions.
6: Okay, uh, for now, direct to Chow, Southwest 6013. Yes, stand by, give me just a couple minutes, and I'll be right back with you.
5: In Southwest 6013 descend at your discretion, maintain flight level 29029 and uh, just maintain 300 or knots or greater. It's been mostly smooth so far.
6: Okay, uh, maintain flight, descend maintain flight level 290 and 300 knots or greater in the transition Southwest uh, 6013.
5: And and that's uh, your discretion on
6: the descent? Okay, I understand. Our discretion on the descent Southwest 6013. And uh, for Center Southwest 6013, I'm going to go ahead and declare a, a medical emergency as well. Um, it's actually the, the captain uh, that's not doing well, so we need to get him on the ground uh, immediately. So, just yeah, we are an emergency aircraft at this point, Southwest
5: 6013. of 6013, Roger that, and um, I understand 40 mil. It's the captain <clears throat> incapacitated. Um, Get medical personnel on board.
6: We do. He is alert and, and attentive right now, um, but we do have medical personnel on board that uh, is going to going to check him out. Roger. We'll have medical personnel standing by on the ground. When
5: you do have a chance, um, if you could just tell me what your original destination was and uh, if you have a gate
6: number. Uh, we don't have a gate number at this point. Our original destination was Columbus. We have. Uh, Let's see, there'd be 143 souls on board, and uh, we currently have, uh, let's call it four hours of fuel remaining Southwest 613. 6013 Roger, right, thank you. Any chance we could get direct to uh, Prino for, actually let's say, uh, I'll set up for the ILS for 2-6, right? Uh, of 6013 could so direct to Prino. And I'm sorry, I guess uh, Prino's not on the ILS for 26, right? Maybe uh, direct to Condi? Final approach clear Uh, cleared requested. Okay, direct Condi for the, uh, 26R right, Southwest 6013. And center, Southwest 6013, we're just now making that turn direct to, uh, Condi. south
5: the 6013, Roger, I'll have a decent clearance for you, just some owners waiting for another aircraft. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Southwest 6013, descend your discretion, maintain flight level 240. All right, our discretion, flight level 240, Southwest 6013. And the 6013, I just passed all that information on. Uh, they will have medical personnel standing by on the ground. Uh, contact LA 124.2, let them know if you need anything else. Okay, 24.2 for
6: Southwest 6013. Do appreciate the help today, thank you. You're welcome. LA Center, Southwest 6013, we're at fly level 290, discretion 240. Southwest 6013, runway center to Santa Maria 1400. You lost Texas altimeter, two nine seven five. You can expect ILS runway two six left. Okay, uh, understand. The Santa flight level, sorry, uh, one four thousand. And uh, can we expect ILS two six right? Uh, we're headed to direct to Condi right now. I'll put that request in with CBS, uh Okay, thank you.
7: LA 409 or KiloGolf 240.
6: 409 above LA Center. And Southwest 6013. Uh, when able to provide the uh, gate number, that would be helpful. Yeah, I'm waiting from uh, dispatch right now to get a gate number for Southwest 6013. I'll let you know. Roger, thank you. Southwest 6013, contact Las Vegas approach 119 or point seven seven And let them know your gate Okay, One one nine point
7: seven. La Southwest six zero one three. Southwest six zero one
4: three, Vegas. Ah, different voice. Sir,
7: sir, good morning, sir. I tell you, one five thousand Oscar South Carolina, Las Vegas. Uh, we have Oscar descending uh one four thousand six hundred to level 14,000. Uh, four thousand. Gate Charlie one, but we're planning on stopping on the runway and being tucked in at Vegas. Delta 6013, Roger, would you like ILS 26 right or do you want a visual assist? ILS 26 right. Delta 6013, 1 Able, to direct fly. Descend and maintain 9000. Direct fly and descend 9000, uh, southwest 6013. Las Vegas Tower, southwest 6013, uh,
5: 26 right. Delta 6013, Tower 10507, runway 26 right, clear to land. Little and c 6 right, Southwest 6013. Southwest 6013, if you can turn right there, you can go straight
6: into the ramp. Unable, Southwest 6013, we need to get tugged into the gate. Can't get off the runway at all? Negative. Hey, tower, can you have him uh, swap to the, uh, the discrete frequency so we can talk about the, the uh, conditions of the pilot to see if we can actually go ahead and uh, put it assist. There... Alright, so tower Southwest 6013, we're doing our best here.
5: Uh, Sixty thirteen. If you can, uh, go straight in there. If uh, not, just clear up a whole line there.
6: Yeah, we're clear here. We're going to stop the aircraft right here and get tugged in.
5: Okay, looks like your tail's off the runway. I uh, appreciate that.
6: No problem.
5: 5. now open. I'll switch them over to discrete frequency.
4: Okay. And I think there was some more communication on the discrete frequency, but uh, that was not captured on this uh, live ATC Excuse me. Um, recording. Uh, you'll note, as I mentioned earlier, that at, cert- at a certain point, the voice of the uh, co-pilot changed, and that is because apparently there was another. Um, what? Was, how did they refer to it here? A credentialed. Yes, a credentialed pilot, yes, uh, a credentialed, <laughs> uh, pilot uh, kind of went up to the cockpit, or he may have already been in the cockpit. Maybe he was on the jump seat. I don't know. Doesn't really say. Uh, but, um, obviously took over, um, radio communications, trying to help out the uh, single pilot at this point, uh, of the aircraft, because I think that the, uh, they had pulled the captain out of the, uh, left seat and brought him back to the back to work on him. And, uh, Tim Van Ram says that he thinks that he knows what happened here, uh, that the uh, captain had the fish. Uh, which is uh, almost uh, certainly. Yeah, yes. um, yeah, it's not a good thing. Um,
3: Victoria is saying it; she believes it was a net jet pilot. A
4: net jets pilot. Uh, Victoria is saying, yeah, that's what I had heard as well. Um, and oh, well
3: done.
4: Uh, yeah, but uh, it, it's kind of unusual for for something like that to happen. And uh, I I can see advantages and disadvantages to uh, having somebody come up that is not specifically qualified on. Southwest's 737 procedures and all that kind of stuff but if you're just sitting there and you know like keep your feet off the furniture and don't touch anything except for the microphone you know you can talk and help me communicate i can see that that would be a a help uh, to the uh, to the co-pilot here in this situation Um, i don't know if uh, there are any specific policies preventing something like that or not uh, but I think as long as you're being helpful, and then I guess at the very end, uh, the reason why the second com- in command, the co-pilot, said that they couldn't clear the runway and they were planning to get tugged off the runway and to the gate is because on the 737 and a lot of other airplanes, uh, unlike the Airbus, the steering tiller is usually only on the, on the captain's side, on the left Side now there are, I guess there are some airplanes that have it installed on on both sides even Boeing's that have a, an arrangement like that but most of the narrow body Boeing's that I know about it's only on the left side so maybe I don't know maybe they had a discussion where hey you want to try that steering tiller over there netjet's pilot and kind of crank that thing over and get us off the runway so they can open up the runway yep. again <laughs> uh, maybe that's how they actually got off the runway I guess you could use some differential braking and you know. Th- you know differential thrust to make a hard right and i think i remember seeing a an airport diagram where they pulled off the runway it wasn't a high speed turnoff but it was more of like a 90 degree turnoff so uh, that would make it a little bit more difficult um if uh, if you didn't have that steering tiller yeah. uh, available the,
0: the last thing you want to do is to actually end up on the grass uh, with a dying captain in the back is, or you know could be dying and then you you can't get stairs or you can't you gotta you can't drag the aircraft in to where the medical assistance is it would just be a nightmare if it didn't go 100 percent, and uh, you would be criticized from dawn to dusk if the guy died because uh, you'd let this bloke have a go at taxiing it for the very first time and he hadn't made the corner uh, so i think he was quite right to uh, do what probably in his procedures which is to stop on the runway i mean it's not like he won't have practiced this in the simulator uh, we regularly used to uh, it, you know the captain would be asked to quietly die in the corner of the simulator and the first officer would be required to from all sorts of various stages of flight uh, sometimes in the middle of takeoff sometimes in the middle of a go-around or something you know uh, he would have to take control and um uh, bring the aircraft safely back, and often we did it with the captain putting an uh, an input in. So you might be climbing away, and you'd be asked to discreetly on just on your headset asked to die with some you know left bank and a bit of a push down, as if you ha- were having a small seizure, and the first officer would have to grab the controls and on the Airbus. You know, if the captain went full nose down and the first officer went full nose up, that aircraft would just fly level. So he's got to remember to press the the red button on the top of the stick so he gets command of the aircraft and gets full input available to him. So uh, there are lots of things to think about in a very short time if you're given that nasty situation because – uh, you know, it's it's not the easiest thing to cope with, but they are practiced in it and they're drilled in it and they know how to do it. So um, it, this guy sounded very in control of the situation right on top of it until they just started to overload him a bit, asking him thing, for things that he wasn't comfortable doing. You know, do you want to text him? No, I'll just, I've told you I'm going to stop mm-hmm. on the runway. Uh, and then they, they were asking him again because they're thinking, oh, it'd be really nice if you get off the runway. <laughs> so we could we can. use our runway. Right. Uh, not thinking about the pressure he's under. You mm-hmm. know, he's doing both jobs now and monitoring a, a different bloke on the flight deck who's only trying to use the radio or whatever. So yeah. uh, wrong, I think, of them to try and, uh,
4: you know, ask too much of him. I agree. And, you know, he, he, at first held his, held his guns or held, you know, held his position like unable, you know, I told you, yeah I'm going to stop here. Sorry. You know, that's just the way it is. But, uh, apparently maybe, uh, he decided, well, maybe we can do this safely and get it off the runway so they can resume operations on it. But, uh. Anyway, I think it was well done. As you said, it sounded very much yeah. like he was in control of the situation. Yeah, and, uh, he really
0: did. he, he didn't yeah. sound like he was having a problem doing it. It was uh, all very nicely done. And he was able to absorb a lot of information as well as what was going on around him. He was hearing all the instructions clearly and repeating them and obviously flying to them. So it sounded like he was, particularly initially, he was doing very well indeed.
4: I'm a little disappointed that they didn't ask him to get the latest uh, ATIS broadcast (laughs) information.
0: Yeah, I know. Why do they do that? As if he's got time to (laughs) tune another radio in and go and pick up right down the ATIS while he's doing all this. I'm going really you can't read out the a too. <laughs> really? Oh, heaven's yeah, know, sake. That's
4: one of my pet peeves. But
0: i going to finish with <laughs>
4: yeah, not surprised boxes. Oh, I haul boxes in our audience says, so just imagine how many flight simmers in that cabin got disappointed that they didn't get to they didn't get picked to help out. Yeah. Well, I don't know. But Maybe they, they didn't know they were they there.
0: had enough problems.
4: Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's uh <laughs> I'm not going to touch that one, Liz. All right. Uh, let's, uh, continue with this next one. Um, we have an NTSB final report and this is from, I'm not sure what this is, uh, article is from, but, uh, uh, let's see on October 3rd, 2021 at, uh, 10 o'clock central daylight time, a tandem air bike, which is what, uh, Liz is showing us now. Uh, at least that's what it looks like
3: that's the before. before
4: it crashes. <laughs> Uh, was destroyed when it, I mean, we're not laughing at the crash, it just uh, no, no. yeah, you know, uh, was destroyed when it was involved in an accident near Warrensburg, Missouri. Both occupants were oh. fatally injured. That's the aftermath. Uh, the airplane was operated as a Title 14 Code of Re- Federal Regulations Part 91 instructional flight. The uncertificated uncerti- pilot who recently purchased the aircraft and a pilot who did not hold a flight instructor certificate as required departed on the accident flight so that the uncertificated pilot could learn to fly the aircraft. The aircraft did not have a required registration and airworthiness certificate. Hmm. A witness stated that the aircraft wing dropped while turning. It then entered a descent and impacted the ground. The engine continued to operate during the flight. The left wing drop followed by a descent was consistent with an aerodynamic stall. Post-accident examination of the flight controls confirmed flight control continuity. Toxicology tests revealed that the front seat uncertificated pilot had high levels of methamphetamine, methamphetamine, meth in cavity blood and liver, most likely consistent with recent use. Which, hey, dude, uh, which likely resulted in some impairment. Let's go fly this airplane. The <laughs> rear seat pilot had a therapeutic level of oxycodone, uh, oxycodone, codone. How do you pronounce codone. it? Codone. Uh, in his subclavian blood, as well as a high level in his gastric fluid with only metabolite in gastric fluids suggesting recent ingestion of the drug. He too was likely impaired to some extent from his use of this drug. Although both pilots were likely impaired by their use of substances, whether that impairment directly contributed to the circumstances of this accident could not be determined. The root issue in this case was the, the decision by each occupant to get in the aircraft and attempt to fly it when they lack the skills and qualifications to safely do so. Yeah, yeah that sums it up nicely. Yeah. Tell me when you want the video, Jeff? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I was going to have you play it while we were while I was reading oh, I'm all sorry. that. That's all right. Um, so there's uh, we have a little video of the uh, of the airplane in action. There we go. Taking the it air bike. It looks like a us. fun little machine. It does. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I can see why they call it a bike,
4: because
0: you do. You kind of ride it like a motorcycle, do not you, with a foot either side of the engine.
4: And there's a there's a seat right behind his. Uh, you can't see it in that frame, but uh, it's uh, when two people are in the airplane, they're almost like right up against each other, touching each other. That's a very, very tight tandem kind of a setup. Get cold legs, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would imagine, but uh I guess if you don't go up too high, it probably wouldn't get... No. Uh, Let's see, i haul boxes in our live audience. Are the feet controlling the rudder or the spinning of the propeller in this? <laughs> well, maybe both. <laughs> um, there are rudder pedals there on, uh, on either side, but your feet are really close to that propeller up there. <laughs> uh, I mean, literally like maybe two and a half, three feet uh, behind that propeller that's spinning. Yikes. But as uh, Captain yeah. Nick says, it looks like a fun little... Thing to fly in I and mean, oh, there are does, no doors or mean, anything on it it's just uh, a wing and a and a tail and a motor up front with a propeller and that's pretty much it Go.
3: not much protection yeah.
4: no nope, not much protection at all
0: anyway well, well, lovely for a, somewhere in a good with a good climate yep yeah, for sure and where there aren't
4: drugs freely available <laughs> yeah true all <laughs> uh, right Uh, Continuing on with this next item um, from the Chicago Sun-Times, let's see, Uh, United Airlines to fly air taxis to O'Hare beginning in 2025. Uh, the first route is planned between the airport and the <laughs> Illinois Medical District, and here is a picture. I'm sure
0: they can stick some more propellers on that if they tried.
4: Maybe I don't know. Uh, how many? Uh, how many do you count there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, six, eight, nine, ten. Six and eight. one at the back. Seven. Some, I, think. I think there are actually more in the back. I, I was looking at some other photos. Oh, and they, really? There are even e- even more oh, propellers in the back of that wing than we can see in this picture. <laughs> uh, lots of propellers. Uh let's see. Uh, beginning in 2025, you'll have a new way to get to and from the airport from downtown, an electric air taxi. The trip between O'Hara and the Illinois Medical District is expected to take about 10 minutes according to California-based Archer Aviation, which is partnering, partnering with United Airlines. The company announced the service Thursday. The price? An Archer spokesman said that they hope to make the fare competitive with Uber Black a ride-hailing service that provides luxury vehicles and top-rated drivers to customers. The air taxis are expected to land at Vertiport, Chicago, billed as Chicago's only full-service downtown heliport, or heliport. Uh, the air taxi seats four passengers and a single pilot. Taxis are being built at Archer's Covington, Georgia facility, so which is expected to be able need to. need not apply. Yeah, Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you're married, yeah. So, sorry. Yeah. Uh, you can't uh, do this uh, well, you service. You need to take a field trip over to Covington,
3: Jeff, and check this
4: out. Yeah, I do need to. Covington, Georgia is uh, just um, like on the east, uh, southeast uh, side of Atlanta. And uh, I should check it out. Uh, although I did look it up, Liz, to see if I could see any progress on the uh, facility that they're supposed to be creating. And, uh I looked at uh, Google Maps, and uh, so far, you know, maybe the Google satellite imagery is, is uh, not up to date, but uh, didn't see any evidence yet of any buildings or anything going on. Yeah, 2025 does seem very, very, uh, not very far into the future <laughs> at all. Uh, be very surprised if they were able to get this thing running in 2025, but we'll see. Single pilot operation. Single pilot operations. I mean, what could possibly go wrong with uh, only one pilot?
3: <laughs> Over a big urban no populated idea. area there.
0: Yeah. Let me think. Let me think. Hmm. Perhaps they could get one of the
4: Microsoft Flight Sim qualified passengers to fly. And there sleep. you go.
3: They're using artificial intelligence for the second.
4: Time. Artificial intelligence. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Chat GPT and Bing AI and all that kind of stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. they could handle all of that. Yeah. Um, Okay, from Paddle Your Own Canoe. Oh, I'm so happy we have an article from Paddle Your I Own think. Canoe. Uh, two Indian pilots suspended after a photo of a full coffee cup balanced on cockpit controls goes viral. Uh, two pilots for the Indian low-cost airline Spice Jet have been suspended after a photo of a full coffee cup being balanced on the controls in the cockpit went viral. Even a tiny liquid spillage has the potential to affect critical aircraft systems and could prevent a plane from flying correctly. The incident happened as Indian Hindus were celebrating the Festival of Holi, which is sometimes known as the Festival of Colors. The pilots appeared to take part in the celebration by indulging in Gujia, Gujia, an Indian sweet which is typically eaten during Holi. Alongside the Gujia was a full paper cup of coffee, both of which were balanced on the center console, console cockpit controls on a SpiceJet flight from New Delhi to Guwahati in Assam State on March 8th. Uh, The photo was shared on social media, their biggest mistake. Big
1: mistake. But it quickly
4: (laughs) went viral for all the wrong reasons after pilots and air safety professionals around the world reacted with horror to where the coffee cup had been placed. Yeah, many airlines have stringent rules about the management of hot drinks in the cockpit because of the inherent—well, any—doesn't have to be a hot drink— Uh, because of the inherent risk uh, posed by getting liquids on flight deck controls. Now, Nick, I'm sure your company uh, probably had some strict rules regarding that.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, If the cabin crew came in, they were only allowed to pass a drink to the pilots around the back of their seats to the outside of the uh, cockpit. So adjacent to the cockpit windows, just in case even in the act of passing the drink, uh, you got a drop spilled on the center console because, uh, um, I mean, they had a spillage on an aircraft. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just a, um, a computer box that fails uh, or in one case, uh, the engine, uh, uh, an engine shutdown uh, because of a short circuit. So um, that's where all the engine controls are, uh, plus all most of the navigation controls and radio controls. So you—they're not waterproof. Uh, you know, it's designed to be a dry environment. <laughs> so you just don't put drinks anywhere near the damn things. Uh, this is just ridiculous. But there you go.
4: Yeah, that's the first takeaway: don't put the liquids on that center console. And then the second takeaway is. If you do something <laughs> stupid like that and take a picture of it, don't share it on social media. Exactly, yeah. All right. That ends our news segment. Now it's time to get to know us. And uh, we have a little jingle for that. There we go. The time of the show where we kind of get all caught up with what everybody's been up to between Well, this will take long, will it? There's only no, two of us. you have a lot more stuff than i have to talk about that's for sure that's that's true i've written a bit down too yeah uh let's see since um the last show i was supposed to go out on a trip the day following our last uh, episode recording however i was feeling a little bit under the weather and had taken some some medication to help with that and uh, because i didn't have enough time between the time i stopped uh, you know, taking the medication and uh, the time that the trip was supposed to report, it just didn't work out. So, ended up calling in uh, sick for that trip. And then on the weekend, I sort of was able to uh, sing, not not very well and not mm-hmm. very strongly, but uh, I was there. And you tried. Uh, I did try the old college try. And uh, then on Monday morning, Monday through Wednesday, I performed, which is what what is likely to be the last time I get to fly with my favorite first officer, uh, Brent. Uh, we flew a trip that uh, ended up in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, for a couple of nights, and uh, just got back yesterday. And uh, he is scheduled to go into the, to the uh, simulator training for his captain upgrade uh, on the 10th Monday, uh, I guess a week from Monday and it's possible we could end up picking up something, you know, between now and then, um, and then fly together again, but probably not likely. So a little sad, won't be able to fly with first officer Brent anymore because soon he'll be a captain, but, uh, good for him. Good for him. Yeah, absolutely. How many years? Oh, I think it's been, uh, it's been a long time. He's enjoyed his, uh, super seniority status as a first officer, oh, yeah. a senior first officer, oh, yeah. I think like 20, something years. Yeah. And, uh, wow. he, uh, finally got off his duff and decided to go ahead and make the, uh, upgrade. And, uh, I know that he is going to be kicking himself uh, when he gets through it and realizes that it's not a big deal and that, uh, you know, he, he's probably going to wish that he had done it years earlier but uh yeah
0: whatever. and and would have accrued a bit more seniority as a captain he'd
4: be yeah. quite senior by now he's going to be pretty senior on he's going to be flying you know the the 717 uh, as i do and he i think he's going to be like in the top 20 percent of captains oh, okay. so well, he's going to be all bad right for us, be- as he starts off Is excellent uh, let's see uh, i boxes says did the two of you develop your own uh, standard operating procedures yeah <laughs> yeah well over the years we i guess we kind of did no we a- always adhere strictly uh boxes to the standard operating procedures of acme airlines but it it was nice you know and i'm sure you probably have had this experience where you fly with somebody um, frequently and you kind of get to know uh, what people are going to be doing and you know, anticipate moves and what the person's going to want. You know, it, it's just, I, I kind of joke around and say, you know, like it's my um, you know, my career marriage or my, my job. Yeah. It's yeah. almost like being an old married couple and kind of knowing it's what your he, job husband. Yeah. My job husband. <laughs> that sounds weird. Um. <laughs> anyway. Um. Yeah. So I'm going to miss it. And, uh, but good for Brent. He's going to have a great time. He's going to make a great captain. And do you want to mention Rick's? Oh um, yeah, Rick. Speaking of captains, uh, Rick has successfully completed, and nobody had any doubts. Uh, to, the, to the contrary, yeah. uh, checking out as captain on the 747. So, way to go, Rick. Uh, let's see. Yep, let's well done some, again. Uh, congratulations on that. So he is the, uh, a captain, commander. I bet he's a popular
0: um, skipper to have. I bet I he, he is. A-
4: I'll bet he is. Any nice uh, guy to fly beside. Being a commander of the Queen of the Skies must be.
0: Yeah, it must be something. nice for a uh, first officer who may not have a lot of time on type to have
4: someone of his ability and skill sitting beside him. You know, right. Lesson every time. Although I'm thinking, if he starts talking about stuff, I'm wondering if, if he if the first officer just immediately immediately falls asleep when <laughs> <falls asleep and laughs> the crickets start playing. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Yeah. Right, uh, so that's it for me. Um, and as I mentioned, well, I may have, I may not have mentioned before we started the show. Um, I mean, I, we, I did before we started, but I haven't mentioned it since. Um, if you're wondering about the uh, my schedule, usually I put my schedule for the you know subsequent weeks uh, on the website, and um, you if you look at April, you're, you'll see that I have no trips on my schedule, and that's because. I have no trips on my schedule, so I'm doing something a little different than I normally do. Uh, I usually bid Uh-oh. for trips and and then I just kind of leave them, and I don't really change them. And sometimes I'll pick up extra flying here and there to supplement it, but uh, normally I'll leave those trips, uh, you know, where where I've bid for them and um, and go ahead and fly them, but. I decided I'm going to drop all these trips because there was coverage for me to do that. And now I'm going to be kind of like on reserve, although it's uh, it's a little bit better than being on reserve, because if when you're on reserve, scheduling calls you up. You, you can't say, well, I don't know. I don't feel like really going out to fly or I don't really <laughs> want to fly there you know, the weather well, you mm, can, but you can only ever do it once because then they fire you. That's true, you can make that decision, but that's never a good decision to make. Yeah,
0: so you just kind of suck it, it up
4: and you do it. You go and you fly the trip that they want you to fly. I get kind of look at what it is they want me to do, and I go, mm, No, not doing that, nice. and uh, not interested in that. I'll, I'll wait for something else. And uh, the down you know, the, the risk to this thing that I'm doing this month is that it's possible that uh i don't fly anything i i don't think it's very probable but it's possible and if i don't fly anything or i only fly one or two trips during the month my paycheck is going to look quite different than it normally does because we get paid by the hour yes we are we are hourly wage earners and if we don't fly a trip we don't get paid um so
0: you sound like you're my builder who gets paid cash oh,
4: in hand yeah exactly exactly so I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be nice because it's gonna give me the opportunity to, you know, fly things that I want to fly. Um, hopefully, nice little one leg out on one you know, in the evening, and then one leg back the next day, and you know, a nice two day trip for hardly even you know yeah, being you can gone. Look
0: to see where the weather's nice, and exactly. head down there. That's the key. Yeah. yeah.
4: Um, what were What were you saying, Liz?
3: Um, when do you have to bid for May? So how
4: long, How soon do you oh, have to figure out if you want to actually start bidding again? Oh, uh, May's um, bid uh, process will begin um, uh, on the 4th or 5th of uh, April. That's when they kind of show what is available for the following month, uh, the month of May. And then by the, I think it's by the end of day on the 11th of April is when my bids are due for so, so you'll may.
3: bid and
4: then i'll end up bidding for again may again? and i yeah, may take it. a look at the coverage and do got this it. same thing depending on how yeah, this how it works, works it. out for me in april <laughs> i may yeah, go no good. i'm going to go back to the normal way
7: yeah no that's, yeah, that's right we'll i see.
4: can't yeah. afford to live like this yeah, yeah. so we'll see so that's yeah. the reason why i have nothing on my schedule and as far as you know where i'm going to be next month i don't know just uh no? follow me on uh twitter and um maybe i'll uh you know put put out there when i end up picking picking up something and i'm overnighting somewhere we can have a you know a last minute meet up thing but uh all right that's it for me so nick what have you been up to
0: uh, well we you know uh we've watching the weather uh and you're sending us some horrible stuff i've already mentioned that really <laughs> Yeah, um, you have. I'm um, still not
4: quite understanding how it's so my I'd fault it or our Well, fault.
0: weather goes from west to east, doesn't it? And so you you're west of weather. us, so uh, okay.
4: We get your. Oh yeah, and hand that weather. hurricane that just hit our country uh, is is going now toward you. Yeah, Wait a minute. Be Wait us a us minute. We don't have. We haven't had a then. hurricane. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: Oh, okay. Anyway, we're having some <laughs> strong winds. You you you're having a, a bit of hot a windy day. Okay. On Sunday, the 2nd of April, now don't forget Saturday is the 1st of April, April Fool's Day, so make sure you've uh, thought up something for your loved one. I I did quite a good one. I uh, came home from a trip and I uh, parked up outside and it was about half past five in the morning and I phoned up my wife, woke her up and said, uh, uh, oh darling, I've had a a car's gone broken, it's outside, I'm, I'm, I'm like 20 miles up the road, can you come pick me up? And so she could leapt out of bed oh and climb, climb, climbed into some clothes and came running through the front door <laughs> to get in the car and pick me up and when I was standing outside, get April Fool. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> she was not impressed. And you're still uh, mad. Anyway, by the hmm. way. Uh, uh so sunday is second of april i'm heading up to yorkshire to talk to the air yorkshire aviation society now they, are they the ones that have they, the uh
4: the taps in the uh control column that's right the, yeah the beer the, the, beer, the free yeah.
0: beer on the flight controls okay, yeah cool. exactly great idea <laughs> uh it's it's gonna be around 2 30 in the afternoon i think um I, I'm, i'll be there about two ish uh, they hold it in the what is called the media room. So it's uh, something to do with PR. But it, the media room above the old cargo terminal, uh, which is on the left side down Airedale House and is straight in front of you there if you look back towards the end of the runway, apparently. Um, they If you're not a member of the uh, Yorkshire Aviation Society, you can still come along. Apparently, you can attend two of their meetings uh, uh, before and make up your mind if you want to join them or not. And you never know. You might uh, appreciate being amongst aviation-minded people if you're in Yorkshire. And uh, it's uh, being held at uh, Leeds-Bradford Airport. So I didn't forgot to mention that, Le- Leeds-Bradford Airport. Uh, anyway, um, my friend has suddenly decided to talk. Oh. Um, that's Sunday, uh, back Monday. Um, a couple of days ago, I met up with a pilot. A lovely chap uh, from uh, Tallinn, uh, Estonia, called uh, Hmm. Alan Talva. And he is uh, currently at Farnborough uh, doing some flying and uh, just got in touch, one of our listeners. So uh, I said, oh, yeah, why not? Why don't we get together for a beer? So not only did we get together for a beer... But uh, I managed to record a little video. So, uh, do you mind if we have a listen, Jeff? Let's that okay? Do that. okay? Hi, Jeff. Uh, this is Nick. Hi, <laughs> and uh, I found another listener. You know, we must have more than one. I don't know what you've been thinking, but over these years, but I found another one. Anyway, we're in a pub called the Foresters, which is near Farnborough. That fabulous place. Uh, that you know so much about and that we've both been to in the past. Anyway, his name is Alan, and he's here doing uh, a fantastic level of training. He's doing jet training. Yay! He's going to tell us all about that and his aviation history. So let me hand you over to Alan.
1: So, yeah, uh, as, as Nick said, we are in this wonderful pub here outside of Farnborough. Uh, it's... Uh... Yeah, very, very nice of you, Nick, to, to come here and, and take me out here. So uh, I'm in. I have been in Farborough for two weeks now, and as as you mentioned, uh, doing a chat uh, diptych, my first one. So it has been challenging two weeks, and uh, not much else than uh, studying, sleeping, eating, studying. So so now it's nice to like be outside of that cycle for a, for a moment, at least. Uh, so, um, I, I, I started my uh, flying, let's say, career in 2016 and uh, I just somehow became interested in flying and I didn't have this, like usual, I, knowing from the very young age that I definitely want to become a pilot, I, uh, I, I was 23 years old when I had never flown on a, any airplane at all and I thought that it's the most dangerous way of, of uh, transportation. So. I, I thought that I was never going to fly, <laughs> even as a passenger. So, but that changed, and uh, I, I found out that aviation is really interesting, and, uh, and uh, so I did my PPL uh, in Estonia. Found out that okay, I, I want to continue. Uh, started working on my ATPL theory, and actually did it also in the UK at uh, Bristol. So, uh, I was basically set on my path uh, to becoming a. Comp- commercial pilot, but then COVID happened. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that uh, changed my plans a bit and uh, it turned out that my my uh, this uh, flight school where I did my PPL, they also need a flight instructor so I became a flight instructor instead for uh, for those two, three COVID years and, and now I have uh, gained some experience instructing. I think it has been very interesting. I've learned a lot during while instructing, and uh, yeah, now I found this next opportunity and uh, to to go and then start uh, flying jets. So yeah, very very uh, excited. Uh, so basically, I'll be flying uh, light business jets, so flying people around wherever they want to go. <laughs> yeah well i mean i would like to say uh, that it's it's a great group of people and and uh, i i started listening to apg uh, when when i started my bpl 2016 so i've i worked through all the backlog uh, except for some reason my podcast app doesn't show the first 100 shows so i don't know if i can find a way how to access the, those then i can work on these as well uh, but yeah i i definitely have the syndrome and uh, yeah uh of course, I'd like to say hi to to everyone uh, in the Apg crew and then the wider community. Back to you in the studio, Jeff.
4: Oh, thank you. Wow, great interview, Captain Nick. Um,
1: oh, thank
0: you very much. It was very, <laughs> it was automatic. He did a great job, and uh, a lovely bloke. And uh, I think he's probably in the same simulator that you flew in. Do you remember at Farnborough when Pip took your class yeah, to the Hawker? Uh, yeah, and across yeah. to the Hawker Sims there. So that's that's what he's training on at the moment and uh, having a thoroughly nice time over there, I think. He, he's. I think he's already uh, on his way back home. Very interesting chap. His, uh, his lovely partner is an opera singer uh, currently uh, based in Belgium. But, uh, you know, life is amazing if you're an airline pilot having – your other half uh, in Europe. Well, you're based up in uh, Estonia. Doesn't seem to be a problem. So, uh, more power to his elbow. Uh, I hope it all went well with the uh, flying tests and uh, the uh, simulators, there, Alan's. And it was a pleasure to meet you. So, uh, let's do it again
4: someday. Absolutely. And he mentioned That's, that he could only yeah. in his uh, podcast player could only he couldn't get the first one hundred. Episodes. Oh yes, he did, didn't he? And I, and I'm looking just to make sure before I say it that it's still possible to get to the that first 100 and get uh, yeah, the
0: secret hundred. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, me, the secret uh, trick to get to them.
4: If you go to the, um, the AirlinePilotGuy.com website um, and you click on the podcasts uh, page. Uh, and then right below the top, you know, it says, listen on Apple podcasts, listen on Google podcasts. There's a line there that says looking for the older episodes. You can find them by going here and I have a link, uh, all APG episodes feed. And that takes you to the liberated syndication website, which is the company that we use to host all of these, um, files. And, uh, I can't do it right now while I'm talking, but I believe that you can go all the so way you back try it? to You go can ahead. try it. I mean, I've, I've, I've been able to, but it's just, it's taking a while to scroll all the way back because there are hundreds of episodes. But, um, I believe if you keep, uh, scrolling down, scrolling down and it loads page after page after page, I believe it will eventually get to that first 100 episodes. Because that's where they live, they live here at this uh, company's servers, and uh, unfortunately, most of the big client um, podcast client servers out there like Apple's podcasts and Google's and all that kind of stuff they they'd only they only go back a certain amount and then they give up
0: <laughs> so, yeah if most podcasts don't have go into the hundreds of shows but, no. Uh, in
4: fact, they say if you're starting a podcast and you actually make it to episode seven, that there's a high likelihood <laughs> that you're going to actually conti- continue to podcast for a while. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So those first few are are kind of difficult uh, to uh, get under your belt, and 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 this is when you realize when you're doing a podcast uh, that it's a lot more work than you thought it was going to be. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately yep, for me, I have. Uh, Many people on our team here on the crew that uh, help help me out immensely, especially uh, Captain Nick and uh, and Liz, the producer in the control room right now. Oh, I'm, I'm continuing to uh, they make it a lot easier for me to to yep, do Jeff, this. I'm
3: back at uh, number eight. Well, we we try going, and shoulder so some of the
4: load, but uh, I'm afraid it still must take
0: you an awful long time to get everything done.
4: Yeah, it does. But uh, there, Jeff. It's a labor of love, and and Liz has confirmed. That if you go to that uh, link, uh, which I'll I'll try to remember at to put. Number one. Oh, you're you're on episode number one. Okay. France, number four, oh, four, Here seven, I am. I'm there eight. too. Let me see here. What is this? Uh, <laughs> see if we can hear hear something going on here. Oh yeah, I remember oh, that. Wow. That theme two. Yeah. Let's see what what I sound like here. Yeah, good. Very. This cool, is the wow. first rebranded uh, airline pilot guy episode. I did actually some. Shows before this. Okay, come Hi, on, Jeff. I'm Captain Jeff, your host. Oh, here he listening is, listening to the Airline Pilot Guy podcast.
3: Voice from the past.
4: That it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not
3: much content. The
4: music. Come a lot on, Jeff. You, you need can... to up
3: the content a bit, Jeff. Yeah,
4: I know. I need to. A little, little slow starting. Your notes. <laughs> well, I love the music though. Okay maybe I should advance a little bit so we're going to. to be pretty much strictly about uh, flying uh, and most specifically about airline flying uh, with an emphasis on uh, the art of piloting which I think as you know if you've listened to my show is something that we're losing okay that's a little a little uh little tease of uh, episode uh, APG episode as i mentioned i was uh, doing another show before I rebranded this um, and it was called Catholic Pilot. I think I have about 30 something 40 uh, episodes whatever. Alan Talver in our live audience, thanks for meeting me Nick. Oh, the guy that we just heard from there in the uh, absolutely. Yeah, he's in the in our live audience. Thanks for meeting me, Nick. Uh, not at all on the way back home sitting in a pub in Farnborough. Oh, he's not home yet having dinner and preparing for tomorrow's check ride. Ooh, good luck, Alan. Oh
0: yeah, good luck. It's going to be a bit windy Bad tomorrow. To it's gusting up. 40 odd miles an hour, but 35 knots. So take care and good luck.
4: Absolutely, great to uh, uh, have you uh, on our uh, in our community, and uh, good luck to Absolutely. you. And hope to hear more from you in the future.
7: Please, please
0: write a quick feedback, uh, Alan, when you've uh, passed that check ride,
4: and let us know how it went. Uh, we'd love to read it out on the show. Here's a good comment, Jeff. Uh, let's see. Uh, UH Blackhawk says, I'm expecting Don Johnson in a leisure suit with that music. <laughs> 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 well, that's what you get.
7: Yeah. No, um, far from
4: Don Johnson in, in a leisure suit. Does Nick uh,
3: want to go over last week's cover art? I
4: think, uh, yeah, I'm sure that he would uh, enjoy doing that. Nick, would you like to go over the cover art from our last episode, episode 562?
0: Uh, Well, yes. uh, I think it was Neil's suggestion that we have something to do with vasectomies, because um, don't remind me, but I think we somehow got onto that subject. Uh, And uh, so we had some vasectomy airlines nuts. Uh, There you go. Mm -hmm. So... I don't know quite if that's where they get their nuts from, but uh, they sure, they claim sure their not.
4: nuts won't <laughs> won't hurt you. So, uh, well, those are awfully uh, small nuts uh, the, in that in that bag. Well, speak for yourself. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> And there, there was wasn't there something about uh, vaz aviation and Ectomy or something I don't know if there was almost oh, kind of certainly
0: connection. yes I'm I'm, yeah. I, I'm really not sure how we got on I, I just get given a title and the next day I can't remember a, a thing about it so I usually have to just go oh I don't
4: know what that was about but uh, again I was using mid-journey. Uh, oh this, yeah. Uh, well, now that's interesting. New... The way that Mid Journey kind of presented the tray tables uh, facing yeah, the the, the uh, window, the window view. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, it's a nice
0: idea. Wouldn't you it like is a to nice be idea. sitting? Yeah,
4: facing a window as you fly.
0: Yeah. yeah. I agree, but uh, Mid Journey is this AI-driven um, art uh, website. So you just put in uh, phrases that describe what you're looking for. And an AI constructs the image from scratch. Uh, very, um, uh, you know, very interesting. You've, I'm learning how to phrase the the bits correctly so that you get something that resembles the end product. But uh, all I had to really do was change the name of the bag of nuts
4: there. Wow. Yeah, uh, Liz is saying that she had trouble finding the show number.
0: Oh, really? Oh, I thought that was a uh... An easy one. Well, I, I don't think it I fought, did you forget to put it in there? <laughs> no, no, it's in um, there. Is it? Uh, I, oh, I might have made it a bit harder. Yes. Now, uh, it was 562? Um, 562. Five, and uh, if you look in the bag of nuts, mm-hmm. there's a space between some of the nuts nearly in the center uh-huh. Uh, so just you like to a dark the right space? of the center, that's where the five is. You go down a bit and to the <laughs> right, that's where the six is. And up a bit to the right, and that's where the two is. You wow. just have to look at it real carefully. Just okay. in those shadowy bits between your nuts. No, you-
4: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. that really tickled Liz. She's she's she's, she's laughing Extremely heartily right now.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. I sh- probably because she's had to expand the nuts up so she can oh, see them.
4: Mm. <laughs> well, you not only didn't make it difficult to find, you made it impossible uh, to Well,
0: find I have to occasionally because people keep saying, "Oh, I found it this oh, way. I found easy. it this week." <laughs> so I think, well, he can't find it. He make it. They
4: um,
0: they're, they're partially visible once you get it expanded up a little bit.
4: Okay, and then that obviously. All right, oh very goodness. good, uh, Liz is thanking you for that. <laughs> um, all right, let's uh, move on to the uh, coffee fund. The
3: coffee fund,
4: and uh, that's when we do our little Jeff Smith jingle. Oh, that's that's me that does that. Here we go. Yeah. I have to push the button, not Liz. <laughs>
6: Johnny,
4: how much more coffee? No thanks. No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community,
2: coffee and tea, and the Java and me.
4: A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. yeah. Coffee fund. That's Jeff Smith, the professional podcast jingle maker extraordinaire. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, And uh, the coffee fund is your way to support our show financially and... uh, couple different ways to do that we have uh, the first one which is the original the og the uh, coffee fund classic method your way to give us a one or two off donation here and there every now and then we also have recurring contributors as well thank you to all of you who do that uh, but since the last episode vernon tryon lewis zipes and doran da silva Uh, contributed very nice generous contributions thank you gentlemen for that we do appreciate that Uh, the other way that you can contribute via the coffee fund is to become a patron of the show via patreon.com and uh, since the last episode we have a new producer robert warden is uh, at the producer level so thank you so much all of you patrons and coffee bar club members we do appreciate your financial support If you want to join this great group of people, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with this piece of feedback from Marty. And uh, let's see. Marty says, hello, APG crew from a sunny and warmish ish, Edmonton, Alberta. Uh, this is the first time I'm sharing feedback as I feel I finally have something that might be worth contributing. First, I'd like to say thank you to the APG crew and community. I've been listening for a little over three years, and in that time, you've kept me informed, enter- entertained, and inspired. Secondly, I'd like to share that I have just passed my instructor rating. All right. Yay. Yay. <laughs> And uh, started working at the flight school where I completed my training. Flight flight school instructor pilot. Uh, That's awesome. I'm 43 years old, have two children at home, and I'm definitely at a later, later stage of life than many other new instructors. I wanted to share this with the community in the hopes that I might provide some motivation or inspiration to others out there who may be thinking I'm too old to change careers and start flying uh is and if that's your question uh the answer is no you're not too old and it's not too late never stop chasing your dreams well said marty he said thank you once again absolutely for being my companions on this journey please keep doing what you do wishing you all blue skies and tailwinds and of course talons douglas Marty from yeah, from uh, Alberta the uh, beautiful province uh in uh, Canada there edmonton to be exact and uh yeah that's awesome
0: yeah it is and uh 43 is uh not young to be starting a flying career but it's certainly not too old you you know you've got a good um 20 25 years in your job uh, available to you so Good luck with that. I hope it all progresses well. And uh, please keep
4: us abreast of your progress. Yes, please. Please do. Okay. Um, this next one is from Titus. And uh, hi, APG crew. This is my first time feedback. I'm not sure if you heard this story. It's a story of a missionary pilot in Mozambique who was wrongly arrested for flying in supplies. Uh, and there's a graphic here, Pray for Pilot Ryan, uh, Mission Aviation Fellowship, MAF Pilot Ryan Coer is coming up on four months of wrongful detainment in Mozambique. We anticipate uh, the end of the investigation and a ruling from a judge on March 6th, although we understand that dates have been fluid throughout this process. Please spend time praying this week for Ryan and Eric and Willem. Uh, to be released and the case dismissed. And this is from Ryan's wife, Annabelle, and uh, Eric and Willem are, Wilhelm are their uh, boys. And uh, I just quickly, before we did the show today, because we've had it in our feedback for a little bit, uh, just wanted to see w- if there was any kind of an update on um, Ryan's status and update for March 22nd, so about a week ago. Uh, Ryan has been enjoying his newfound freedom this past week as he shared a message with his coworkers that we want to share with you. And then they have, they have a video link to that. He has been a doctor. He has been to a doctor for a checkup and also met with the U S ambassador to Mozambique and some of his staff. They remain engaged with the case since Ryan is out on a provisional release. Uh, Ryan has returned to his home in Nampula where he will wait for the judicial process to move forward on his case. Please continue to pray pray that this case will be quickly dismissed and that Ryan is granted a full release and that he can be reunited with his family soon. Uh, Now, I think he was accused of um, providing um, supplies to um, some insurgent groups in the country. Um, Let's see... Uh, yeah, he was detained prior to piloting a charter flight to deliver supplies to orphanages near Montepuez, in Mozambique. While conducting the normal security scan at the airport on November 4, police took an interest in some vitamins, over-the-counter medications, and food preservative supplies he was to de- deliver to the orphanages and adult staff. None of the confiscated material belonged to Ryan, nor had it been loaded onto the airplane. Uh, AAL has been conducting these annual supply charter flights to the orphanages since 2014. So, uh, looks like he was wrongly accused of d- wrongdoing and, uh, hopefully, uh, the court system, the legal system there will kind of sort it all out and he will be free, uh, long-term, not just, uh, on a provisional basis.
0: Absolutely. Uh, course we're going to have another story if we get to it uh, about the difficulties of being a a foreign pilot working in a country where their laws might be quite different to what you're used to at home and particularly when there's a country uh, with a conflict um, what might be seen by yourself as aid for um, in this case orphans could be seen by the government as that aid not guaranteed to go to where they expect it to but to support people who might be um trying to overthrow the the established government for example so you have you do have to be very careful and squeaky clean Uh, And things can sometimes go adrift, and and I feel this this is what happened here. But there are always two sides to the story. We don't know the Mozambique government's side because we don't have any quotes from them, really. But um, I I just say, if if you're in one of these difficult situations, just make absolutely certain that all your paperwork and clearances uh, have been cleared and okayed with the governments that is in power and that they're absolutely aware of your actions and they have agreed that it's okay to do it and then you won't fall foul of um, their laws. Um, It's it's a very difficult situation uh, for people to understand when, uh, you know, what apparently on the surface appears to be just a pure humanitarian flight And an American citizen caught up in a legal system in a foreign country, but for example, even airline pilots when they're um, just travelling abroad or airline crews, we discovered after a while that we've been when we've been going to uh, Dubai that some of the straightforward over-the-counter medications that we could. Buy from any pharmacy without a prescription in the United Kingdom were prohibited in uh, Dubai. And if you were caught with them on your person entering the country, you could be uh, put, you know, arrested, and um, there could be a court case against you for trying to smuggle drugs. And you might go, well, that's ridiculous. This is is not even a prescription drug. But in that country, it is against the law to move those drugs around. So you do have to be very careful.
4: Yes. And, you know, you mentioned uh, that there is another uh, piece of feedback uh, that we may get to. And the control room has uh, directed me to go ahead and cover it now or us to to cover it now oh, so that we can kind of tie it in with the, uh, the Mozambique story. And this was sent to us by Nigel, uh, a big part of our APG community. And um, I think that I'm going to let um, Captain Nick go ahead and handle this piece of feedback for us.
0: Yeah, well, I had to listen... To it and uh, it's a little political, so we try and avoid uh political conflict uh on this show because we try and stay above that. Uh, and we, you know, we all have different political and religious views, so uh, the show isn't about that. But the interesting thing in here is that it's a, a former US citizen. Uh, who is now an Australian citizen, who was in the uh, American military as a pilot. And he, along with some former RAF pilots, have been working through a company in South Africa to uh, provide training for pilots in China. So it sounds a little complicated, but basically the guys have... uh, Joined a South African company and then they're sent to China to provide flying training for Chinese pilots. Um, and the problem is that it is possible that these pilots might go on to become military pilots. They might already be military pilots. But uh, in from what I, I have read, the only training that these foreign instructors are providing is flight training they're not doing anything on weapons so you know they're just teaching people to fly as many people are around the world um but now that uh huh, this chap has gone back to australia presumably after filling his contract or, or stopping work uh the u.s government because the relations perhaps with china and america aren't at an all-time high um are seeking to extradite him uh back to the united states to face um charges now that's not the nub of it the the big problem at the moment is he's being held in in remand he's being remanded in prison um until the extradition uh hearings can go ahead and this is just the first stage and um The Australian authorities uh, are very strict when it comes to extradition cases on whether they will allow people to be allowed out on bail, Uh, and it's very unusual for them to be allowed out on bail. Uh, And so this chap, uh, this Mr Duggan, is being held in far from congenial circumstances when there is, this is merely an extradition case. <laughs> he certainly hasn't been yet proven guilty of any offence. Uh, yet he is forced to stay uh, in jail, and not a very pleasant place at all. Um, and the the main complaint at the moment is: uh, is this a fit place for him to wait? Uh, for the very long period it seems to be taking for him to uh, face his extradition charges, only the first stage in getting him back to the United States to face more serious charges. So it is an interesting story if you're into this sort of thing, and I'm sure Jeff will uh, provide the link to the radio program, which discussed it with a uh, a legal uh, representative. Uh, who was able to give advice on it. Uh, And um, when you think of it, it it brings to me to mind the pitfalls that uh, face you unexpectedly when you do something that on the surface seems quite an ordinary thing. You're an ex-military instructor, flying instructor. You're, You're going out to another country to teach pilots. You're not doing anything that would appear remotely illegal. Uh, yet, uh, way down the road, you know, government's opinions might change on whether what you're doing is a good thing or a bad thing. And you might all of a sudden find yourself in the poo. Um, it reminds me of a case where a pilot, uh, with a foreign first officer captain, he was uh, an expat flying for an airline in a foreign country, they uh, did a landing, and there was an argument between the two pilots as to whether they should continue with the landing or go around. They were actually on the runway at this point. And uh, the captain uh, was trying to stop the airplane, and the first officer was trying to make it go. And every time the captain slammed the throttles and tried to put the brakes on, the first officer did the opposite. <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty sure, certain that was – it might have been the other way around, actually. The captain decided to go around, okay, and the first officer wanted to land anyway. By the way, they crashed the airplane. Both survived. But in this particular country, the first thing you do is get thrown in a prison while you wait for the outcome of whatever board of inquiry is going to be and whether they're going to then charge you for some kind of negligence. And being uh, in a country where mm, uh, the legal system might be biased against Uh, expats, people from other countries, um, there was a good chance that this chap uh, would be um, kept in jail, would be found guilty of some misdemeanor and kept there for quite some time. It's always worth ensuring that, particularly if you're the captain of an airplane operating in a foreign country, that you do have access to uh, and immediate access to legal representation and legal advice in the country at which you might have an incident. Uh, And the way I achieved that was to join a strong union who had um, a very strong legal section and had access to legal representatives in every country where I flew. So I had an emergency telephone number that was active 24 hours a day. And if I had an incident in a foreign country, it was almost my first action was to call my union and arrange for local legal representation to ensure that um, I was treated fairly when I was there. And my union also used to provide a, a checklist of things to do uh, and things particularly not to do, not to say, not to do. Uh, and in some cases, I've heard of uh, pilots who fall and foul of the local um, police following an incident where their legal representation representative has got them away from the police and almost immediately put them on an aircraft out of the country because he said, if you stay in this country, you're going to end up in jail. The best thing you can do if you want to fight this is to do it from your own country at home. Um, So that was the situation. And he was more or less smuggled out of the country straight straight away. Mm. And I'm not trying to make uh, it appear to be a difficult thing because incidents aren't common and most countries would treat you fairly but not everyone so right. just make sure that you know where you're going and what the situation is when you get there
4: yeah uh, another comment from our live audience uh blackhawk i would be loath to use my military instructor qualifications to teach overseas without the blessing of the state department but I think part of the problem with this case is the, the dual citizenship, I would imagine, uh, Australian and U.S. citizenship.
0: Yeah, that is an interesting one, the fact that he is now an Australian citizen, and to become an Australian citizen, he's had to give up his oh, okay. U.S. citizenship. So it's not a dual citizenship. He can still be extradited for the actions he took when he was – before that
4: event, oh, I guess. Okay. Wow. The tangled web we weave. Um Exactly. And, and, and people ask me why I don't like flying to these small little <laughs> countries in the Caribbean and thinking yeah. and think you know. I'm good. I'm going to stay in the US. I mean, yeah, you've only,
0: got, to, you've only got you've only got, you got less than a year, so exactly. Good, I don't want a, to take care.
4: Something goes wrong, I don't want to be thrown in jail for the rest of my we life. I used
3: to come really up to Canada. <laughs> that was kind of scary.
4: Oh, and then Canada. I used to go to Canada too, and uh, they're the worst of all of them. Yep. Uh, oh, they, golly, they'll yes. throw you in jail talk and talk about rabies.
0: Right <laughs> well, oh,
4: absolutely. <laughs> just kidding, of course. Just in case somebody doesn't know my sense of humor. <laughs> doesn't realize. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks guys. Yeah. Like some of my best friends are Canadian. About, about
3: 15 minutes left till the plane tail, Jeff.
4: Okay. Um, yeah, I don't really have any friends who are Canadian at all. So, no, uh, I, I try not, to stay away nice. from those people. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, Liz. Love you too, okay. Jeff. Uh, this is uh some feedback. Uh, we have some Mo feedback.
3: Mo, Mo yeah. <laughs> from
4: Mo. Uh, he says, "What's stopping me?" Uh, good evening, Captain Jeff. I'll try not to make this too long-winded. I fell in love with aviation at a very young age, and I knew that I had to do something in that field. I went to an AT-CTI school to become an air traffic controller, but unfortunately that never worked out, so I tried the next best thing, in my opinion, and became an airline dispatcher for an airline based in Phoenix, then a few years later for an airline based in Las Vegas. The first time I got to a jump seat, I'm pretty sure I had tears in my eyes as we rolled down the runway. I dispatched for a few years, but around the start of COVID, I had to stop. I've always had an itch to be in aviation. Last April or so, I decided I want to try to become an airline pilot. Now, here comes my problem. I have, uh, I'm have, i having lots of fears about pursuing it and have been procrastinating for the last year. There's always something stopping me, whether it's fear of failure, fear of some kind of castrophobic uh, Uh, Catastrophic. Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Let me try that one again. There's always something stopping me. Whether it's fear of failure, fear of something catastrophic, uh, failure of the airplane during training, or hour building, fear of not being competent enough or smart enough to succeed and be successful at it. I've never had such strong feelings of wanting to do something, but have it met with such strong doubt. I'm 33 years old and want to get this done as soon as possible, as I'm a little older than when most people would start training to get into the airlines. I was hoping I could get yours and Captain Nick's thoughts. Thanks for taking the time to read my email. And he said, P.S. Love your show. I drive between Las Vegas and California weekly, and your show is a go to. Thank you very much. Uh, oh, how nice. Mo, for the uh, nice comments about our show. We really enjoyed doing it. Is that
0: it. Mo that's on the cartoon?
4: Um, which cartoon? Uh, family Guy is it? Oh, Three Stooges? Oh uh, no, he's he's the barman, isn't he? Mo. Uh, Mo. Oh, yeah. I don't know uh, a lot of the characters in that. Oh, um, that's on that's on the Simpsons. On thank The uh, Simpsons. Okay. Yeah. Well, this might uh, be Family
0: Guy. Have an airline pilot on there. I'm trying to remember his name.
4: Yeah. Uh, oh, that was uh, that's uh, what's his name? Gosh, giggity. God. Yeah, the guy that goes giggy giggy. Catchphrase. Uh, uh, giggity giggy. Uh, shoot. The chat can't room I? will know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, they'll, yeah, the chat room will definitely know. I don't and, watch it, uh, though. Uh, I, gotta, I even no, have a sound I was effect. was the barman. From, but he could be a barman. Couldn't he? Mine uh, no, could be a barman. What's his name? Uh, Quagmire. Quagmire <laughs> is the, uh, <laughs> is the uh, airline yeah. pilot. Yeah. Thank you, Super Fred Driver. Um, well done. Anyway. Um, yeah, in fact, I think I have.
3: Uh. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is your Captain Glenn Quagmire. Uh
4: <laughs> 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 a PA. We have a recording of his Mark. PA. Good,
3: Derek and um, Super Fred Driver.
4: Yeah. Uh, okay. So, um, so what do we do? What do we tell Mo, Captain Nick?
0: Yeah, it's a difficult one, and to be brutally honest, Mo, I went through the same kind of uh, problem of self doubt when I left the military. Um, I was 39 so you know a few years on but the military to me had almost been like a family and it was uh in those times more or less a job for life or at least a job to 55 not necessarily flying if for some reason you left your flying medical or something then you knew they would they would find a job for you and you wouldn't probably lose any rank you still get paid and and you would be fine until you could pick up your pension at the end. To leave that sort of halfway through, I served 19 years, but I could have gone on for another 15 or 16, um, was quite a step. Uh, And, you know, it's a bit of a leap into the unknown because you spend a long time uh, in the military and you know how to do their way of things, but all of a sudden you've got this, uh, almost insurmountable number of qualifications you're supposed to obtain in a very short time and um, then you've got all the flying tests and you've got to self fund all this uh, and it you it wasn't that uh, hard for me because it was like right, funding because it you know I had a reasonable amount of experience I just had to get an instrument rating that was about ten thousand pounds and pass all my exams that was probably another five or six grand um because you know attending schools and things to learn all the stuff and get through it all anyway so um and then of course you've got to find a job and when i left and was there i took me 12 months to even get the sniff of a job it was the middle of the Gulf War and none of the airlines in the UK, and not even the contacts I had with airlines in, say, Australia, uh, were showing the hint of recruiting anybody. Uh, so for 12 months, I lived on my savings uh, and watched that disappear down the plug pretty fast, because when you've got a mortgage and family to keep up, it's, it's not easy managed to get some part-time jobs, but I, I had this dreadful feeling that I'd made an awful mistake. Uh, you know, I'd left a, a situation of security and thrown myself out into the open market uh, where it's dog-eat-dog out there. Um, you know, everyone's got a ATPL and a few thousand hours, and I, you know, I had no, no type ratings or anything. I wasn't that an attractive option. Uh, so I, I went through heavy periods of self-doubt and uh, so i i know what it is to make that jump uh i was pretty certain it was all going to turn around and luckily for me it did um but you know i do understand where you're coming from when you're sitting there looking at uh you know is there going to be a problem uh, am i going to have the ability uh and all i can say to you is it, follow your heart if you if you believe in yourself, then there's a really good chance that you, you will come through at the other end and look back and say that was a hurdle and I'm proud of myself for getting over that. Uh, when it comes to something like fear of f- uh, catastrophic failure of the aircraft, well, no, that's you know you should have the confidence that you're going into a profession that you know is inherently safe and that uh, your training and your ability will carry you through, and that the aircraft are wonderfully safe. They really are compared with military airplanes. They're absolutely brilliant, and uh, there should really be no concern there. Uh, But you've got to convince yourself of that, because after all, uh, when you're a professional pilot, you'll be looking to appear confident and assured in front of 300 or more passengers um, who are all looking to you to feed from your confidence and your assurity that this this flight is going to be safe and normal and even boringly uh, run of the mill. Uh, And you should be able to kind of exude that confidence because people will expect it of you. And it's just one of those things you will need to pick up
4: uh, as the years go by and as your confidence builds. UH UH Blackhawk in our live audience says, times have changed. It probably would not take him uh, long to break even. The days of regional uh, first officers making $17,000 a year are behind us. And uh, that's a good thing. I'm glad to hear that. For sure, yeah. And Tim Van Ram makes a good point as well, which is really hard to believe. Uh, Getting a job is tough when you are a a virgin. Um, Yeah, I was hmm. a 40-year-old virgin. Oh, that's sad. But, you you know, they they made
0: a movie about
4: me. I know. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, it was. I thought so. And
4: I Hall so. boxes said, you missed 100% of the shots you didn't take, and you got to take them one yeah. at a time. Good point. I was going to say, I share a lot of my, um, as far as my flying uh, history uh, with Nick. I mean, we were both in the military. Now, I think my mindset uh, and you know my intentions going into the military were quite opposite of, of Captain Nick's. I had no intention whatsoever of uh being a military officer for most of my career my uh, i I guess I was kind of uh selfish because the reason why I went into the military in in addition to uh you know being able to uh, defend my country uh was to also get the experience that I needed to uh, fly in the airlines, which has been the dream of mine since I was a little kid, you know looking up into the skies of Southern California and watching all these airplanes fly by constantly. And I, I I always wanted to be in one of those airplanes flying. And quite honestly, I actually changed my mind about being an airline pilot for, for my career when I was in uh, my latter stages of high school and early college years, because I did not want to go into the military. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that I knew nothing about what it would be like to to be in the military uh, at all, because I didn't come from a family of of uh, military officers and that kind of thing. So um, I finally got to the point where uh, in my line of studies as an engineer, I realized I didn't want to do I couldn't picture myself doing that for a living. I really wanted to fly. That was a passion of mine. And I finally thought, you know what, if it means going into the military to do it, then that's what I'm going to do. And that this is back in the 70s, uh 1970s, when the people that were getting hired by the major carriers at the time were mostly military trained pilots. And so I finally thought, if that's what I got to do, I'm just going to suck it up and do it. And man, it was the best thing I've ever done in my life. Going into the military, working with such amazing people and the, the training that I received in the military was just beyond anything I can imagine. The things that I've got to experience uh the, the kind of flying that we got to do uh was just something that I'll 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 never get to do again most likely in my life yeah. and uh second not I it really is it's just top notch and uh so it, and then it's just the the feeling of being in the military services um they they take care of you you know you may not be making you know huge amounts of money but I never felt like I was not making a lot of money, I, I didn't really think about it that much. I just knew that I was everything was taken care of for me: my housing, my my meals, my uniforms, everything. And I and I was lucky, um, very blessed. That uh, opposite to the situation that Nick had, and of course, a lot of this has to do with where you're in the military and where you're trying to get a job as an airline pilot. And it also has a lot to do with the timing. And at the time, my timing was good when I was coming up to the end of my. Um, my, my first date of separation in the, in the military, I mean, I only got separated one time, but I mean, the, my earliest point of separation, my, I had fulfilled my commitment to, from getting my wings, uh, and I was able to, uh, separate from the military at that point and, uh, just happened to be, uh, the time where here in the United States, airlines were hiring. Uh, it was not like the situation that, that Nick, uh, found himself facing, it was a situation where oh okay you were in the u.s air force so you were you were an instructor pilot and you have this many hours and uh you're hired you know you're the airline at the time uh, 90 95 percent of the uh, pilot hires were ex-military just like me uh, so i i just it just it was seamless it was i didn't pay a, a dime of uh of, of money to get any ratings we had uh, something, a little test that we—I t- think it was like a twenty, twenty-five question test called a military equivalency exam that I took um, after I got my wings uh, in the Air Force. And uh, basically, the FAA said, "Okay, here's a, a commercial multi-engine instrument-rated, limited to centerline thrust. Here you go. You have a civilian rating <laughs> now." And th- that was given to me for nothing, for free. And uh, oh, that's brilliant. the only thing I had to have uh, when I was out there. Uh, uh, putting in my applications to the major carriers was, uh, airline transport pilot written examination. That was the only requirement that I had to have. Now, a lot of guys were also getting their, uh, airline transport pilot certificates as well. And yeah, that was costing money. That was, I think at that time was somewhere between a thousand and five thousand and $5,000, I think. Um, and I, I decided that, uh, I didn't need to do that, that I could, I could get hired with just my commercial multi-engine instrument rating. And that's what I did. I got hired by a very, very strong legacy carrier. And, uh, I knew that when it was time for me to upgrade to captain that, uh, I would get my airline transport pilot certificate as part of that process. So again, talking about being blessed and not having to pay really, I, I had maybe four or five hours in my logbook. Uh, Before I went off into uh, uh, the U.S. Air Force, and uh, and I'm not even sure much of that I had to actually pay for because the guy that was the instructor was another fellow lineman or line boy, I think they called us at a at a uh, fixed base operator, and uh, he uh, took me up in a Cessna 150 and. I, am not even sure I gave him any money for it. Uh, wow. so my, my training, <laughs> pop, yeah, I, maybe, I don't know, maybe I gave him something. I'm not sure. I, it's so long ago. I don't remember. But bottom line is, uh, because it was such an easy path for me and I was so blessed not to have a, a huge out, uh, financial outlays, uh, is one of the reasons why I'm doing this show with my good friends and it's my way of kind of giving back because I've had such a wonderful career, flying career. And, uh, I mean, it just couldn't have been better. And again, a lot of it has to do with timing. And as far as the, uh, being, um, feeling like I, I wasn't up to, uh, accomplishing all these things, my mindset from the very beginning was like, no, I, this is what I'm going to do. And, And I don't think I ever had that, that, Doubt at all uh implanted or that seed was never implanted in me. It was like i this is what I'm going to do. These are the steps I have to take to get there. I know people that have done this ahead of me, and I'm thinking they're yeah, they're really good people too, but they're there's nothing special about them they're not no, no that better much than smarter you are, than so me, and in fact, some were going it? like how if they can do it, heck, I can do it too, you know? Yeah. That's the kind of mindset that I have
0: It's a it. well-trodden path, and there are peoples of all sorts of levels of ability that have been there before you. So
4: it's nothing to stop you. And i uh, Box is another comment from him. Uh, Think about the fear of being old and regretting what you missed out on in life. Yeah. Yeah, that's okay. very true also. Uh, and, and I'll just say that... Um, I can kind of another parallel for me was, you know, when you get to a certain point in your airline career, okay, you've made it, you're hired by the airlines. And now you're looking at, okay, do I, do I, do I put in for, you know, upgrade training like, uh, you know, Brent's doing right now. And after, at, at first you're going like, no, I don't know enough to do that. I need to have more experience. I need to, you know, experience the operation and, and, uh, and try to put myself in this person's shoes and what would I do in this situation and that kind of thing. And at first you're kind of like reluctant. And then after a while you start getting a little frustrated with some of these you know, these guys that you're flying with that are making like dumb decisions and you're thinking, oh, I think I would have done better. in this." And then it just gets to the point, finally, you're going, you know, if this idiot can do it, I can do it too. (laughs) And honestly, I mean, that's what finally pushed me over to go ahead and put my bid in as a captain because I'm thinking, okay, it's going to be stressful and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be a lot of responsibility. But I'm thinking, gosh, there are so many people I've flown with in my past that that they did it. And my goodness, if they could do it, I certainly can. And so that's finally what pushed me through it. And then once you do it, you're going like, what took me so long to do it? You know, although yeah. for me and my timing, uh, I really couldn't have done it much earlier than I did because of the seniority situation and the economy and the cyclical nature of the airline industry, uh, yada, yada, yada. But, um, anyway, so that's my two cents about that.
0: Absolutely. And I think a a lot of what uh, Mo might be feeling is just that they're making the step, you know, crossing that line and saying, right, I'm going to go for it. I think once you've got yourself through that initial problem um, is, you know, you'll find things will flow a lot easier. Don't try and look at the whole expanse of knowledge you've got to obtain. Just the first goal. Yeah. Look at your first goal, get through that, then look forward. Don't try and encompass the entirety of what you've got to achieve in one go.
4: It's it's not like that. You'll do it in stepping. Exactly. You know, like stepping stones. Yeah, because if you try to look at all of it, then that's just overwhelming and can be paralyzing. You can't let that happen. Good advice, Nick. Well, you know, speaking of your military career, um, I wish there was a way for you to kind of bring us <laughs> with you and your experience oh wait a minute there is a i a I've got a time machine if you'd like to use it well let's do that um, <laughs> okay. I, uh, I think we can uh, go down to the old pilots uh, plane tail and uh, as I've mentioned many times before these are my favorites the uh, RAF Royal Air Force Forum 414 volume 21 the latest installment of this and I'm looking forward to it as I'm sure everybody else is as well here we go
0: Old Pilot's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 21. Life on 77 Squadron had settled down to a routine, if it ever really could, on a fighter squadron. I'd been asked to take over the job of the daily planner, who detailed who would fly to fulfil our commitments for the week. As such, I kept track of who was available to fly, what level of ability they were, and tried to give everyone an even number of hours. Months varied, but it was common to get around 20 hours a month, leading to an annual total of over 200 hours. As the planner, I could have given myself an unfair amount of flying, but this would soon be noticed by my fellow pilots, who by now referred to me as NTP, Nick the POM, and made public. This meagre total would have been laughed at by the average airline pilot, who often topped out at over 900 hours a year. But after 19 years of continuous military flying, I only accrued a total of 3,676 hours. The big difference was the quality of flying that we did, and although the Hornet had an autopilot, I barely remember ever using it. For example, a low level attack sortie would often begin the day before, particularly for the leader of the mission, with route planning, map preparation, and because it was Australia, filing a flight plan. Apparently, every cocky, shit kicker, or jackaroo in the outback with a farm strip. A decrepit radioless old air truck needed to know exactly where and when the Royal Australian Air Force might be a day in advance. Knowing the attention to no that professional pilots give, I wonder how many actually read them before jumping into their flying Utes? Answers on a postcard please. What's more, once we left the tyrannical embrace of air traffic control to descend to low level, we knew that all hell would break loose should we fail to emerge back into radio contact within two minutes of our declared time. This made any tactical changes to our plan just about impossible. I was used to a freer form of military flying, where we could act completely independently, under the same rules as other airspace users, but I wasn't there to try and change the way the country operated, so kept my lip well buttoned. There were a few low-flying areas where random flights could be conducted, but they were small and well-known and didn't fit the requirements for good training. The leader would brief the sortie, which required thought and organisation and could last an hour if it was a complex mission involving outside agencies, for example. The rest of the formation would need to prepare for their individual roles in the flight and be ready for what would be asked of them, a knowledge of the weapons to be simulated and the attack profiles, etc., 30 minutes would probably be allocated just to get out to our jets and get airborne, remembering that we had to manually enter every coordinate for our route, each requiring a bunch of alphanumerics followed by an arrow check to ensure it all looked good. Finally, we'd be off to enjoy 90 minutes of sweaty fun thrashing around in the red dust of the Australian outback before throwing the jets back at the runway, parking up and debriefing what had just been done in great detail, often for two or three times the duration of the actual mission, so that we could squeeze the absolute maximum benefit out of our flight. There was certainly plenty of variety to our flying, In one month, I flew some practice bombing attacks both day and night on the Evans Head Weapons Range north of us by 230-odd miles. This was followed by a four-ship formation demonstration of ground attack on our own airfield as part of an open day celebration for the public. Then night radar bombing on the Beecroft Range at Jarvis Bay, about 150 miles south, Then we bombed and sank a tugboat before flying off to New Zealand. There's actually a little more to that story, the tugboat that is. The Murray Porter was a 363-tonne tug, registered under the flag of Australia in 1966. She plied her trade faithfully, pushing and pulling vessels in and out of Sydney Harbour until the 17th of November 1987, when she met her fate, courtesy of the Royal Australian Air Force. Just when she was coming of age, at only 21, when the world should have been her oyster, she was taken in tow and dragged out into the open ocean between Sydney and Newcastle, where her position was noted and a temporary danger area declared around her. Early that morning, 16 Hornets from Royal Australian Air Force Base Williamtown were prepared with live Mark 82 500-pound slick bombs in quiet corners of the airfield to prevent sympathetic detonations in case of an accident. In turn, four formations of four taxed out and took off, heading out to sea on what would be the Murray Porters' last day afloat. The first two four ships were from 77 Squadron, the following aircraft from 3 Squadron, the dodgy lot next door. The first formation attacked and then it was our turn. Our leader swung his aircraft onto the attack heading and in turn we followed in trail. We'd accelerated to attack speed and were skimming the sea as the miles counted down. With the ANAPG-65 radar searching for the target and the waves whipping past, I became a little anxious, but then I saw the little brick-shaped radar return that indicated the Murray Porter, very near to where I expected it. With the radar locked, the bombing symbology appeared, a line stretching up the head-up display. Beneath me, the ballistic computers were calculating my energy levels against the distance left to go, and at about five miles, I manoeuvred the aircraft flight vector onto the line and put the master switch on, and with the burners in, I pulled hard up. As the nose came up, I knew I would be theoretically vulnerable to a ship's defence system, so I hit the chaff and flares button near the left canopy rail, and the pre-programmed sequence, not that we actually had any to play with in those days, were fired, and I pressed the commit button on the control stick to allow the bomb to come off. I concentrated on keeping everything steady, smoothly holding about 4G as the aircraft symbol rose towards the release queue, and when the two met... I felt a small bump on the airframe as the 500 pounds of ordnance fell away. A second or more of pull and I inverted to watch the torpedo-shaped bomb flying below me, still climbing to the apogee of its arc. In the real world, I'd be banging another sequence of defensive decoys and diving back down on a safe egress heading, but this was too good not to watch. For a while I gently hung in my straps formating on seven and a half feet of matte green steel stuffed full of eighty-twenty mix of trinitrotoluene and aluminium powder added to improve the heat output of the TNT and the power of the blast. I couldn't see the fuse arming but knew that as soon as it had fallen away from its station a simple wire strap had pulled a pin that allowed the propeller on the front to spin up freeing the pistol to operate on impact. I didn't descend down with the weapon but stayed high out of the way as it turned tail on and fell out of sight. I switched my gaze to the tugboat and realised why the radar had taken so long to find it. The once proud Murray Porter had no visible superstructure to speak of. It had all been wiped off the hull by the first attack, and it was little more than the outline of the hull sticking out a few feet above the waterline. The leader's bomb impacted as I watched, and the wreck disappeared beneath a bright white yellow flash, black smutty smoke, and a fast expanding cloud of white shock waves. Then my effort detonated in more or less the same spot, and as I eased out of the way, I could see a plume of water rise just to beam the ship, and then another hit from our last two bombs. As we taxied into park in front of the squadron, we had smug smiles on our faces as the three squadron boys were sent to park on the other side of the airfield amongst the arming revetments, as they had brought all their bombs back home. By the time they had lined up to have a shot at it, we would sent the 130-foot, 40-metre-long tugboat to the bottom of the Tasman Sea. Three days later, I climbed into another of our clean new jets to head back out over the Tasman Sea and not return. No, I wasn't looking for Australia's Bermuda Triangle, but starting a journey of 1,200 miles, of which only 10 would be spent over land. We were deploying from Willie to Royal New Zealand Air Force Base Ohakia on what was, for the Australians part of a long-term mutual commitment, but for me was an amazing new experience full of weird stuff I hadn't done before. The Kiwis had a small boutique air force. They had a few strike masters, a weapons-capable version of the jet provost that I flew during my basic training, that they operated as a jet trainer and a weapons trainer, and nicknamed the Blunty but their main combat unit was 75 Squadron, which flew the Douglas A4K Skyhawk, initially acquired from the US Navy, but boosted to a complement of 20 aircraft by the purchase of 10 A4Gs from the Royal Australian Navy. The flight was fairly long and close to our maximum range, so we were glad to break into the circuit and touch down on New Zealand's soil. However, we were under strict instructions not to lift our canopies on the taxi in As we all parked up, an official from what was probably the New Zealand Ministry of Ag and Forestry came around to each of us in turn and we cracked our canopies so he could pass up a can of insecticide, masks up as we emptied those cans into our little cockpit space just in case we were the reincarnation of the superhero Flyman, and our ground crew kept us amused whilst we killed off our alter egos. Before long and smelling of DDT, we were off to the mess to enjoy my first pint of beer for a year or more. Not that the Australians don't drink beer, just not pints, or certainly not back then. They had a confusing array of sizes of beer glasses, which ranged from four to fifteen imperial fluid ounces. In theory, they had a twenty-ounce pint, but nobody wanted one because there was the faint chance a modicum of warmth might have got through the frozen glass into the frozen beer so that you could taste it. These glasses had names that changed depending on what state you were in. That's geographical, not of intoxication, which varied from Small, Fawzi, Shetland or Pony, through Beer, Butcher, Bobby, Six, Seven and Glass, to Midi, Handle, Pot or Ten, and eventually a Schooner, or possibly a Pint, which wasn't a Pint, if you see what I mean. My favourite wasn't the small bottle known as a stubby, but its much larger cousin, only found up north, called the Darwin stubby. I digress. Whilst I imagined Australia of the 1980s to be a very pleasant mix of Europe and America... New Zealand had a much stronger British flavour, in the nicest way, with good manners, cream teas, a more laid-back approach to life, and brown beer in proper dimpled glasses with handles. I felt like I'd come home, albeit a home of the 1950s. Part of this was down to the motorcars everybody used – New Zealand had a highly punitive import tax on new cars from abroad. As a result, everyone hung on to what they had for as long as possible. I imagine it was a bit like Cuba after the US embargo, where classic old American sedans with huge tail fins cruise around like a post-war movie studio. Since it was the days before the Japanese car manufacturers invaded, the cars in New Zealand were old British models. Austins, Morris's, Daimler's, Rovers, Wolseys, and Triumph's, all in excellent condition, mainly due to the lack of salt on the roads that rots British cars at home. Indeed, despite being on the bottom of the globe, Everything felt fine until my world was literally turned upside down when I strolled up to the bar and stood beside a very familiar RAF pilot I had known since my earliest days in the military, John Fiennes. John, who we could tickle until he hyperventilated himself into complete unconsciousness, who could sleep in the bath until he looked like a white maggot John, who became disorientated while supersonic and a-lightning at night over the sea, recovering by pulling some 10 Gs, thereby wrecking his aircraft forever, and at last seeing a negative height on his altimeter before falling unconscious. John, who had been a fellow instructor on Hawks and was now with me drinking beer some 12,000 miles from home. Weird. Whilst John went about his work for the RAF Central Flying School by checking out some of the Kiwi instructors, come Monday we began work with the A4s, the story of which I shall have to put off until my next logbook tale. Suffice to say, what I have described up to now occurred in just the first 20 days of November 1987, and the rest of the month would include combat missions against the Skyhawks away refueling from them ship strikes against targets towed by their navy frigates and visual dive bombing at night under leapers flares tune in for the next exciting installment of flyman
4: i can't wait <laughs> flyman
0: Oh, yeah, my new nickname, I think.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that was packed with all kinds of gems.
0: Oh, there were some good times. Uh, It was a busy time and uh, great fun. And, of course, everything we did was brand new to me, so I just loved it. But I'll never forget that really strange dislocation I felt when I walked up to the bar in New Zealand, the other side of the world, and there was one of my oldest friends leaning up against it, drinking a beer. And I just, I, I, I was completely, you know,
4: confused. It seems like era. he was quite a character uh, based on your
0: Oh, he was. That story of him uh, nearly hitting the ocean at night in his lightning is just uh, horrendous. Because not only did he um, manage to survive, uh, he the, the lightning, when it was transonic, had a big altimeter error. And he, the last thing he remembered before he fell unconscious as he pulled this huge high G pull up to get away from the water, was about minus twelve hundred and fifty feet. And when they calculated his speed and the altimeter error, they kept, reckoned he came within a hundred feet of the ocean. That's how close he was. He had no idea because it was dark, and he went unconscious. When he woke up, of course, he was going vertically upwards with no air speed whatsoever. And his aircraft had hydraulic failures because all the flaps had fallen off uh, under the high G load. And uh, he barely recovered from that and then had to limp this aircraft back to Bimbrook and put it on the ground. Uh, And that was just, you know, the least of his problems. But uh, anyway, he was a a lovely guy. Uh, Failed my instrument rating once. So he... Well, he failed your instrument. Man? He failed mine. He was uh-huh. an instrument rating examiner, and he checked me out once. And I went to a, pardon me. He gave me a diversion to a civil airport, and um, uh, we made an approach under QNH. I was used to making an approach under QFE, mm. and I had forgotten to apply the airfield uh, elevation. So um, I followed the ILS down, and uh, when he said, okay, Nick, look up, uh, I still had about 10 feet to go to my decision height, and there was the runway up about 20 feet away. <laughs> 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 and uh, he, he said, well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to fail you because you forgot to change your altimeter, or you did change your I forget what the error I'd made. Uh, anyway, wow. I forgot to apply the, the difference in, uh, airfield elevation to my, uh, approach plates. So it was a fair uh, anyway.
4: evaluation. <laughs>
0: oh, absolutely. It was, we, we did the trip again next day. Uh-huh. But, uh, he said, I was very impressed. The fact that you kept the needles of the ILS, a manually flown ILS off a separate instrument crossed until you were, you know, literally on the runway. So yeah, it's hard to oh, do. Well, you get in <laughs> <close>. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. But uh, lovely, Blake. Lovely, Blake. Still keep in touch.
4: Well, Neil and our uh, live audience, that's a story we have to hear sometime. The next interview series? Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. If I could get him to tell it. I mean, he's told it enough times, so I don't yeah. see why he shouldn't tell me.
4: Yeah. But yes. That'd be great. That'd be great. Yeah. All right. Well, I enjoyed that as always. And uh, I think uh, we can go ahead and resume. Uh, Taking on some more feedback from our for it. awesome community. About thirty-five minutes uh, remaining in the show, so let's. Uh, where do we leave off, Liz? Number six. Okay, this is from Josh. Josh in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah, it's been a while since I've been to Tulsa. I got to get back there. Um, hi there, APG crew. Uh, Hope everyone wasn't there a is song, well.
0: Twenty-four hours to Tulsa. Is that the uh, same place?
4: Probably. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, Liz seems to think so. Um, Anyway, uh, hi there. Hope everyone is well. This is an article regarding the lawsuits surrounding the Boeing 737 MAX crashes and how Boeing is defending themselves in court. It seems they are suggesting that because the crashes happened so quickly that there wasn't time for the passengers to feel pain. This seems an especially heinous defense, even for lawyers. I truly hope this turns into a PR disaster for them and they will have to pay even more compensation to the families of the victims. And he got the he gave us a link to one mile at a time.com. and uh the headline is Boeing argues that the 737 Max crash victims didn't suffer. And uh, anyway, so we'll we'll have a link to this but I just highlighted one the um quote uh, as reported by the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Boeing is trying to get out of paying compensation for suffering, uh, quote, Boeing attorney cited an ex- expert who said that the 737 MAX victims died painlessly because the airplane crashed into the ground so fast that their brains didn't have time to process pain signals from their nervous systems. And uh, it just goes on to say this is uh, this is beyond the pale here. This is. uh Yeah. Not.
0: We live in a different world to lawyers, and there's no doubt about it that they have to weigh up the good against the bad and try to find something good to weigh up or something that might alleviate the pain of losing your loved ones would be very hard. But it's their job to do this, and as much as I find it as heinous as the next person, and uh, I think our legal systems around the world could well deserve a dose of morality um, these are the defense b- attorneys jobs trying to find ways to limit the penalties that boeing will suffer as yep. a result of this so to a certain extent i'm saying it's it's their job so you
4: know yeah as 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 horrific as that is it's truth and yeah uh, that's uh yeah I agree.
0: I don't have any sympathy at all uh, for that attitude, by the way. I I much prefer the um, bit at the end, which was uh, human factors, airspace physiology, uh, argued the following. Whilst passengers undoubtedly perceive the flight as scary, humans have a tendency to hold on to hope and not expect the worst. Ultimately, it's impossible to know the subjective experience of each occupant. I think we can say quite happily that they had an awful... Time while mm. they
4: waited for their death. I agree. Yeah, I think we should skip uh, over that one, Liz. Uh, the uh, one where we'd like to have our uh, North Carolina or uh, South Carolinian resident uh, here with us uh, when we discuss. The, oh, the uh, Kankalacta Kankalacta song. Song. Yes, I, yeah. I
0: definitely want to hear test reaction to that. Yeah, absolutely.
4: Uh, so we'll jump to uh, number eight. Uh, Evan um, says, so "Longtime listener, first time caller. <laughs> I currently fly for Acme Junior, and since Acme has pretty much banished us to LaGuardia and JFK, oh my
0: god, I figured isn't Acme I'd, an awful outfit? It's think, terrible. I don't think I'd want to work for them. <laughs> uh,
4: Since uh, yeah, we've we've been banished uh, to LaGuardia and the JFK. I figured I'd have to write in to update Captain Jeff on the current LaGuardia procedures for runway 31. Sadly, since I've been at Acme Junior, the Expressway Visual Three One is no longer used. Huh. What? That's a shame. When I started a couple of years ago, the Park Visual 31 was the primary approach for 3 uh, 1, which while still having a sporty turn, is less severe than the expressway was from what I understand. And there were some waypoints we could load into the FMS to help our situational awareness. That might be why when I saw that uh, video of Graham's um, that it looked like it wasn't that it was kind of a not a big turn. Yeah, you did
0: mention that it kind of brought you in on a different lineup.
4: Right. So maybe that's why uh, that they they weren't flying the Expressway Visual. They were flying something else. Um, Let's see. On um, uh, windy days, the localizer slash RNAV 3.1 is still used when needed. And you're right, Jeff, you're not missing much, not flying into LaGuardia anymore, although the new terminals are very fancy. I enjoy the show and keep up the great work. And this is uh, from EA, um, Evan, and he's also an OB listener. That's why he signed off with uh, Echo Alpha, I guess I should say. He did that just to annoy you. I think so. But you know what? (laughs) I love it. Please keep them coming. (laughs)
0: Absolutely.
4: Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Uh, feedback number nine, Chris. Okay. Uh, let's see. Dear crew, hope you're all well. I haven't left feedback for a while. Chris here. You may remember me as a provider of emergency internet hotspot at APG 500 in the UK. Oh, 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 you saved our skin that night. (laughs) Nick remembers him well. He says, I haven't written into the show in a jolly long time, so thought I'd drop a few words over. Still here, still listening. I had the opportunity recently to take a quick week-long business trip out to Sydney. A first time in Australia for me, and what a wonderful place. Captain Nick, I can see why you speak so fondly of it. Less about that and more about the travel, though. I booked myself and my colleague onto the Emirates A380, What a magnificent aircraft. I've flown a number of times on the A380 before. However, what never ceases to amaze me is just how quiet a place to be it is. I'm not sure if this should be considered a definitive measurement. However, my Apple Watch was reporting a consistent 64 decibels in the cabin. Well, that is quiet. I'd be interested uh, if anyone else gets a measure on their watch in different aircraft types, but I can imagine they are significantly noisier. Having flown to Singapore on the A350-900 in August of last year, the A380 seemed notably more hushed. You could easily have a conversation with your seat neighbor during takeoff. Not that I did, as mine slept through it. (laughs) Okay. Um, I noticed on takeoff that the engine spooled up to about halfway, then takeoff thrust, but then increased again a third time as speed started to build up. I thought that this was the pilots up front going, oh crap, we're really heavy, floor it. But it wasn't until I had dinner with a good friend and fellow APG community member, Adam Catling, last week that he mentioned that the A380 apparently has some kind of a system that only applies the full takeoff thrust at 35 knots once airflow is stabilized through the engines. Clever stuff. You were talking about the old Airbus a three hundred in a recent show. Did you know that the air the last Airbus a three hundred rolled off the production line after the first a three eighty side note, I think there are some passenger variants of the a three hundred still flying, perhaps Mahan Air in Iran. Not many though they are mostly freighters now. We had an interesting moment during the second leg from Dubai to Sydney. I was sat in the premium economy cabin at the front of the aircraft on the lower deck adjacent to the second exit. And there's an LCD screen that shows who's calling when someone calls the flight attendants, etc. The damn thing was binging and bonging all flight. But about 40 minutes out from landing, there was a new type of bing. A very subtle bing, 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 three chimes in a slightly higher pitch. I looked at the LCD enunciator by the exit and noticed it said smoke detected or something like that. One of the flight attendants gasped. Uh, said, oh my gosh, under her breath, and dis- disappeared into the galley directly behind me. And I heard talk of grabbing a fire extinguisher, and one of the crew had donned some pretty thick, full-length rubber gauntlets. As I mulled over in my mind whether the sheer size of the A380 meant that we'd have a decent chance of making land before fully being fully ablaze, things thankfully seemed to calm down. I asked the crew once things had calmed down what occurred, and... Uh, it transpired that someone had sprayed hairspray in the lavatory. That must have set off the smoke sensor, huh? Yeah, um, I'm
0: afraid it, it was either that or someone was sneaking a quick yeah. puff of a cigarette.
4: Could be, yeah. They were surprised I had noticed anything, though, and asked if I was off-duty crew. Uh, the new Emirates Premium Economy product is nice. It has the smart automated window shades. Not the 787 bin liner style ones where the glass slowly changes, but the electric window shades that go up and down between the window panes. They add a great ambiance to the cabin, except as I found when abused by the crew. We had a 6 a.m. departure out of Sydney, and as soon as we hit 10,000 feet, the flight attendant pressed a button up front and closed the blinds in the entire cabin. I immediately opened mine, and again, he pressed the button and closed mine. He did this about three or four times, and each time, I probably came across as passive-aggressive. I just hit the button, uh, the open button once again. It's 6 a.m., and I'm not sleeping. Why would I want my window shade closed? (laughs) Good point. On a different note. I enjoyed the conversation on a recent show about volunteering CPR skills. If you aren't a medical professional, but if there is a medical emergency on board an aircraft, a bit about my background: I'm a police officer of 15 years, but recently made a career change and now work for a London-based ethical technology company that I had worked with for the past three quarters of a year or three or four years. I'm not sure if, what, what do you mean three three quarters of a year. You think? Oh, three to four years. Okay. In my previous role, though I've also stayed on in the police in a voluntary capacity. Whilst not directly related to the feedback, a big part of what we do is around alerting ordinary people with basic life support skills to incidents of cardiac arrest in their immediate vicinity using our smartphone app, which has a direct connection to ambulance control rooms. It doesn't take a doctor or paramedic to begin basic CPR or use an AED, and by crowdsourcing these basic but valuable skills when uh, needed, you can keep people alive until they get advanced life support from more highly trained professionals. I delivered this app across my police force, and my colleagues in blue over the past 12 months have delivered successful CPR on 48 occasions prior to arrival of an ambulance, having been alerted via the app. My take on the feedback, although I'm not, uh, albeit I'm not a doctor, uh, would be absolutely offer your skills. If you can see CPR is required, it can be physically exhausting and have having people there to rotate in is vital. If there are medically trained personnel, they may be in a position to provide more enhanced first aid care and manage airway, knowing that someone else can take over compressions. If it's a large aircraft, there may be enough trained crew, but Every situation is different. Aircrew and airport staff are generally first aid trained and there are AEDs at every other gate. And that's why you are 80% likely to survive a sudden cardiac arrest in Heathrow Airport, but only 9% on the streets of London. And that's what we aim to increase. We also do some other really cool stuff, such as providing people that dial 999-911-000 with the ability to live, live stream video and location data to emergency call takers whilst on the emergency call without needing an app and probably save a life every day or every other day. This is a shameless plug, but if any other community members work in the police, fire, ambulance, EMS sector and want to know more, we operate globally, not just in the UK. Our website is, uh, and I'll put the uh, link in the uh, in the show notes. It's uh, basically a uh, good Sam app, uh, good G O O D S A M A P P dot org, Good Samaritan app or Good Sam app org, or www.instant.help if it's easier to remember. I'll happily chat aviation and tech with anyone over a virtual coffee or beer. Jeff, please feel free to share my email if anyone would like it. Okay, so we have um, his email address as well, Chris Postel. Uh, or Postel, Postel. Um, I've just renewed my Class 1 medical, so with a bit of luck, I'll find some time and headspace this year to get back in the air. All the best. Chris Postel, longtime listener, patron, community member, internet provider, procurer of red Audi TTs for Captain Nick. Oh, really? He had something to do with you procuring that. uh oh, most red certainly. Aldia. Yes. Uh, okay. He
0: he he knows uh, all the wheezes to try and get the price of your car down. So wow. he put me in touch with a website called I think it's Get the Drive uh-huh. or Drive the Price. One of those. I Drive was, the price uh, up? No, that's not it. Yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, anyway, with his help and negotiating skills, we we knocked a good. Uh, six or seven thousand pounds off the price wow. of a new audi for me uh which helped a great deal and yeah. of course he saved us the uk end of the 500th show mm-hmm. when he uh, stepped up with his mobile phone and gave us an internet link that we were desperately trying to uh, generate wow well, so lovely man uh, thanks again for your help there Chris, and if you have with a car, appreciate that. He was busy buying a Volvo at the time, I think. Oh. So I'm just
4: wondering if he still got that, or has is he, is he moved on from there? Chris is definitely, definitely a critical, critical part of our APG community. Oh, very no, sure. certainly, yeah. Very good. <laughs> i I was going
0: to just mention a little bit about uh, the, um, the issues with the engine. It's not really an issue, but the difference in noise levels when you're on a takeoff. And it's all to do with stability of air going into the engine. And uh, Rolls-Royce say that with a tailwind or a a crosswind over a certain limit, it depends entirely on the aircraft type and the engine, exactly which engine, um, you can end up with disturbed airflow going through the fan uh, at certain RPMs. Uh, So um, what can happen is the fan blades, which are, Pretty big blades they can uh, start up a resonance they can flutter and they can disturb the airflow into the core of the engine which is where all the work is done that's where the compressors and the um, flame tubes and the turbines are um, so it's quite important to get your acceleration of the engine right now when I was uh, flying the uh, three four six hundred, 330 had the same problem I think um, it was, uh, we had various different th- throttle techniques to avoid the danger areas, um, but effectively it meant going to a stabilized position and advancing the throttle uh, at a certain rate and then achieving your flex takeoff position um, at the right speed. Uh, but nowadays they can program the um, FADEC, the uh, fuel uh, and digital uh,
4: engine control. I Full authority right. digital. Well, uh, thank control. you. Yeah. Oh, well, I actually got it. an acronym right. That's that's. My, Bells. well
0: done, yeah. So they can uh, they can program the Fadec to uh, do the correct acceleration technique for you, hmm. and it usually requires um, avoiding a uh, keep out zone. There, so there's a, for example, uh, you know, with a 3:30 with a Rolls Royce engine uh, Trent uh 500 say might have a keep out zone from uh 60 to 74 percent of uh, n1 n1 being the uh fan speed 100 percent being you know max speed uh and that's a you don't want the engine to uh linger in that um zone so uh you you know you might be required to just push the throttle straight up smartly to uh, flex position, let the fade out, take control. You might need to do it manually. But uh, the engine will certainly, uh, depending on the airflow, uh, will alter its acceleration rate to ensure that uh, it sort of moves through that keep out zone uh, s- uh, correctly uh, to prevent fan instability. Um, I'm just reading here from their website where they say during the progressive application of the takeoff thrust after the stabilization set, and that's a relatively low power set, not idle, but you advance the throttles to the stabilization step, and that gets the engines part way up to power and make sure they're all at equal power so that when you advance them, you don't get an unequal thrust le- level that will veer you off the runway Uh, the flight crew should ensure that the levers are advanced continuously and simultaneously moving the thrust levers too slowly may lead to asymmetric engine acceleration if one thrust lever is moved outside of the keep out zone before the other Um, one i mean the keep out zone is just a small region and it is only required at low speed with a strong crosswind or tailwind and only during the takeoff. So it's a very specific area that needs uh, the pilot's attention. But it's just one of the myriad of techniques you have to learn as a pilot depending on uh, what aircraft type you're flying and uh, what stage of development they're in because they change Year by year, in fact, you know, month by month sometimes as things develop in the technology of the aircraft you're flying.
4: Let me tell you about my experience with uh, techniques and spooling up and that kind of thing. This is before uh, the the magic uh, electronic uh, digital computer systems that control all that stuff on your fancy engines. This is the 727, the three-holer. We got three uh, ah, yes. three holes in the back, three uh, engines. Uh, the two on the uh, either side of the tail, uh, they're you know have lots of airflow around them, and they don't have big ducks. Did you duct were work. your
0: ladies? Were your aircraft called ladies? I mean, did you refer them to as she?
4: I don't remember. I think most okay, of the time I'm we just, did, but okay. I know, I, I know okay. when you use now that term, to- three holers. Okay, okay. <laughs> I see where you're going with that. Anyway, uh, we'll, we'll we'll say the uh, the sometimes I don't know why we called her the Studebaker um uh, but um anyway okay. the uh th- so the the third engine uh they're all three um you know on the same level uh but uh because the center one uh has a big giant fuselage in front of it it's hard to get air into that so they had to create that S duct uh, which is on top uh you know the fuselage right where the vertical stabilizer starts actually it's part of the stabilizer's st- uh, vertical stab structure uh, and then, of course, the, uh, the it's an S-duct, so the tubing goes down and then goes straight into the uh, number two engine, uh, the center engine in the back. Well, you can imagine, and these Pratt & Whitney uh, JT-8Ds were pretty, you know, they're, they're lower bypass uh, fans, and so, you know, it's kind of hard to disrupt airflow on them. Uh, but if you are getting your air through an S-duct, uh, you can see that there might be a problem, especially if you have uh, higher crosswinds. And that is indeed uh, an issue on that airplane. You could easily compressor stall that number two engine, that center engine. Wow. And so, what we had, our technique was if, if the crosswind was anything more than uh, just a couple of knots, we would bring the uh, number one and three engines up to a certain point and start our takeoff roll. So we get some forward motion and more air going into that S-duct. Um, and then once we got to a certain point, we'd slowly bring in that center uh, thrust lever and, uh, and uh, align it with the uh, one and three and then move all three of them together to the final takeoff thrust position. Uh, but uh, if you weren't careful about that and uh, you just cavalierly, you know, just slam that number two uh, engine uh, throttle up, I know a lot of, of of you people are going, that's not a throttle. Well, that's what we called it. Um, if you put it up there too quickly, boom, it was like, <laughs> it was, it gets your attention. It makes a big noise and people are not happy to hear that oh, sound and, and you have to usually abort and, you know, okay, let's try this again. But um, anyway, so that was our technique with uh, the, uh, the, was, uh, the three holer was
0: interesting that a, um, a, consideration for us was that whenever we had a crosswind, we would try to do rolling takeoffs mm-hmm. because the idea was to get forward moment uh, with smooth air going into the engine before you demanded any great acceleration of the engine. So wherever possible, we're trying to do rolling takeoffs.
4: Yeah, that's definitely a thing. All right, thanks, Chris, uh, for your feedback, and thanks for being there when we needed you. I mean, talking about oh, that 500th absolutely. episode, I, that just brought memories of all the technical hurdles that we had to ju- <laughs> go through. Yeah, and we had all these little minor nightmare. miracles happening all over the all over the globe. <laughs> so, yeah, there, someone was looking after us. Though. Someone yeah. was up there, including Chris. Okay. Uh, Micah says, what is, uh, was there a similar technique with the L-1011? You know, I was thinking about that when I was thinking about what I was going to say about the 727, Micah. I was thinking, I don't, ever, I don't really ever recall any kind of a technique like that with the L-1011. And I think mainly it's because, yes, it also had that same kind of an arrangement with the uh, uh, engines, well, at least the center engine. Obviously, the one and three engines were on the wing uh, of the L-1011. The middle engine number two in the back again was the same kind of thing where it was at a lower level so you had to have a that s duct direct the air down into the intake of the uh, number two engine and i think that there wasn't a problem with it is because that s duct on the l-1011 was like a giant sewer pipe i mean it's like (laughs) i don't know what the diameter of the thing was but i do remember (laughs) we had a field trip when we were uh in training on the l-1011 they took us over to the uh tech operations and we went into the hangar and they had uh some scaffolding and everything else up above in the tail area and we got to look and i think they had the number 2 engine extracted so you could just see the the intake and you could see how it would go down and then out and you could see um pretty clearly uh how huge this giant duct was uh, it was literally like a sewer, like a large city sewer pipe. I don't know how many. Uh, it had to be at least, I don't know, eight feet in diameter or something. Maybe that's too big. Maybe not that big. But it was like it was huge. It was very Did impressive.
0: You line dance down stand it.
4: Yeah, it would have been fun, except I don't think that there was anything to catch you on the other end if uh, (laughs) you had kind of did a like a slip and slide or something. I'm
0: guessing then that the DC 10 probably had it right because they didn't need any. No, they didn't need any any kind of ducting at all.
4: Yeah. It was just. Although it wasn't as elegant, I, in my opinion.
0: No, I I agree. Look, it looked like it was always going to fall off. Yeah, like was I'll just terrifying. slap an
4: engine on it. <laughs> yes. In fact, yeah. I think that's like- kind of what they did. <laughs> yeah. like, we need we actually need three engines, so let's just put one right there. Yeah, and that'll yeah. work. Anyway. So, Jeff, we're
3: getting right near the end. Do you want okay. to finish up with the uh, one about Nick's autobiography, number 17?
4: Uh, we can do that. And I'd also like to just quickly uh, cover uh, the, uh, the the thing about the hippopotamuses.
3: Okay, great. Yeah.
4: Okay, number 12. Number 12 um, Alan says, hi, gals, guys and gals. As an ex-airline guy, BA spokesman, etc., and private pilot, mm. I have been catching up with your excellent episodes, including APG 404, and hippos on the runway at <laughs> a uh, Dire Dawa. Dire Dawa. I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, say that. Uh, causing an Ethiopian uh, DH8D a bit of a bother on takeoff. Uh, after some confusion, Captain Nick established the plural of hippopotamus can be either hippopotamuses or hippopotami. However you should be aware that for centuries this has been the subject of much controversy <laughs> even within really? the zoological community oh brilliant indeed way back in the mists mists of time legend has it a zookeeper wrote to his friend at a breeding establishment dear fred please send a hippopotamus ps send another <laughs> <laughs> All best wishes and proving <laughs> that the old ones are the best uh, or worst. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Alan I love Murray, that. Uh, from uh, West He didn't Sussex. want to commit himself to one or the other. <laughs> I love it. Uh, he's uh, Alan is from West, Sus- West Sussex in the UK. Oh, okay. Well, that's not far from me. Oh, you guys should get well, together and yeah. talk about hippopotami. Or... Well, we could indeed. Yes, yeah. for sure. And then uh, number 17. We're going we're gonna to end it with this one. Uh, Phil uh, Timmer, uh, he's an ACME 737 first officer, Uh, he writes in and says, Like most listeners, I'm always thoroughly entertained by Captain Nick's recollection of his amazing aviation career. Between flying gliders as a young lad to his RAF, RAAF training and sorties, bookended by his lengthy airline career, I can't help but think that a great autobiography is in order. Nick is so well-spoken as most Brits seem to be, somewhat frustratingly to an American, that I can't help but think a book in self-narrated audiobook are in order. Captain Nick, what do you think? Apart from my home printer, I couldn't help you publish it, but I think it's worth committing to the annals of history. Take care.
0: Well, I kind of think I have, really, because all those uh, plain tales are out there uh, for anyone to dip into. And uh, the idea of... uh, giving myself more homework
4: <laughs> you need more things to do nick
1: <laughs>
0: yeah exactly it doesn't really appeal so uh i i appreciate it and you're not the first to make the suggestion nope. no, uh, not. but uh, uh i think I'd, i'm gonna leave it as as it currently is because it's it's great for the uh show if people enjoy it and they mm-hmm. want to be able to pick and choose amongst them which ones they want to listen to then i think that's
4: brilliant And I was, you know, early on when Nick was doing these, you know, he, it kind of asked if it would be okay, if, okay, if we actually played these on the airline pilot guy show. And I went, are you kidding me? (laughs) Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) And in fact, I I was trying to encourage Nick to like, make this a separate podcast. And, uh, and he goes, no, I'm, I'm happy to, you know, to just have it on the, on the show uh, every once in a while. And I went, okay, I'm very honored that, uh, that you're that you're thinking that way and we're very honored uh and entertained to uh, to hear these I uh,
0: if you Jeff of if you are just interested in catching up on old ones, you can access it uh, as a podcast on, on its own without yep. having to try and find it in a show. So you can do that on the website through the Plain Tales page, or you can just search for uh, Plain Tales on any podcast app or even Spotify, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, you can find the, the stories there just just The stories without
4: uh, the rest of the show. Right. We made it a separate feed so you can yep. subscribe just like you do to any podcast out there. So,
0: although I'm not as good as Jeff is about getting them out on time. So, uh, I had a little flurry about a month ago and I'm probably about four or five behind now. So they're a bit in areas, yeah, but they tend to come fault. out.
4: <laughs> <laughs> because I kind of go, well, I'll, I'll upload that, you know, because I got to, you know, up them to the server and they got to get into the injected into the feed that we just talked about. And, uh, I, I'm guilty of kind of getting, uh, lazy about it. And then Nick will kindly say to me, um, do you have any more plain tales that I can work on? Because he adds more material to them uh, on our website. And, uh, anyway, so I'm, I'm probably several behind again, so I'll try to catch up, but uh, it. yeah. Anyway, so check it out. If you want to learn how you can uh, subscribe to the plane tails, uh, just go to the website, com slash uh, plane tails, I think. But it's, yeah, it's on the exactly. menu uh, up there. So check it out. And uh, with that, we're going to talk about the website right now because we're wrapping up the show. AirlinePilotGuy.com, again, Tales is a separate page. We have a podcast page. And, again, if you're looking for those first 100 episodes, uh, there's a link there that you can uh, uh, listen to the old ones. And uh, we've got the APG library, merchandise, uh, a blank calendar. Uh, and other <laughs> yes. stuff there. And uh, so please check it out, AirlinePilotGuy.com. And we are also on social media, the social meds, I like to call them. Uh, yeah,
0: that's uh, on Facebook uh, is our first uh, port of call. And there you just have to look for AirlinePilotGuy, all one word. And then uh, Twitter is the next port of call you might be interested in, and that we're at APG Crew. And uh, that's very similar to the uh, Instagram pages where uh, I stick each week the uh, new
4: artwork that we've produced, and that's ABG Crew again. It is. And, of course, we also are on Slack, and uh, we're going to have Hillel tell you all Always about
3: Slack. Oh, he's in Copenhagen. <laughs> oh, he's in
4: Copenhagen. Okay. we got a special <laughs> mic there. Hillel, how's Copenhagen? Okay, but I'm dripping Yeah, what does that have to do with anything? I don't know. Anyway, uh, why don't you come over here and tell us all about Slack. APG
7: listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack.
4: Thanks a lot, Hillel. Say hi to all the Nielsens. Got a lot of Nielsen's there in Copenhagen. Does he? Yeah, oh, I, I mean never. that's uh, that's that's where they're from.
0: I've never come across another one.
4: Yeah, well, probably a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, also, we'd like to thank our uh, producer Liz Piper. Come on, yeah, Liz, well quick, done, Liz, make yourself there you are I'm here. Liz is uh, just uh, a gem and a big part of our crew. and thank you so much for all the work you do. I'm sorry
3: week. I didn't remind you about your recorder today, guys. That's my bad. I'm sorry. What's that? I'm sorry I didn't remind you about your recorders. That's
4: Oh, hey, that's okay. I, I have a way of getting that, uh, that uh, audio. Uh, we only missed out for now. It wasn't bad. Yeah, it wasn't bad. And, uh, and yeah, not a problem. I, I've done this before. Trust me, I've gone yeah. entire episodes without recording. No, at
3: least we didn't do that. <laughs> Thanks to Nick.
4: Yeah. All right. Well, um, yeah, that's about it. Uh, we'll uh, thank again our live audience. Uh, you guys mean, guys and gals mean so much to us. We do appreciate it. We appreciate all of those out there who are part of our Coffee Fun Cadre, our coffee bar club. And uh, just thanks for listening, telling people about our show. And uh, we hope Sending you enjoy in feedback. We love that. What's that? Feedback is also uh, feedback. something that Liz loves. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, with that, uh, we hope that we see you again next week. And until then, we wish you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Talents, Douglas. Bye, everybody. Cheerio. Bye-bye.
3: Yeah, he's up in. The sky is the airline pilot guy.
7: Good day.
1: a good, good pilot till I started APG. I opened doors for little old ladies. I helped them to their seats.
0: Airline not a guy.
2: I
1: fly friends because I'm always flying. I just don't have the time. But I can land this old plane. I can land it just fine.
0: Airline, not a guy. I fly a major airline.